This week on Punch Mountain, Arnold's back, just like he promised. And this time, he's bringing more than just action. He's bringing marital issues. Dance sexy for me, because we're watching True Lies. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined as always by, I don't know, he's leading a double life, I can tell you that much, Mr. David Hotta, or is that even your real name? <laughs> oh, we'll never find out. It's, it is, it's my real name. I don't, I don't know why I teased it like that. No, it's absolutely my real name. How are you, Mac Blake? I am good, David. And uh, the reason why I'm so confused by a you know a potential web of deceit is because we're talking about the the 1994 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie True Lies. And David, normally uh, you know movies are suggested by me, you, or one of our listeners, but in this case, this movie was suggested by our guest, who I'm very excited to have on the podcast and introduce. He's a comedian, a writer, musician filmmaker, podcaster. He's got great hair, which you can't see, but his name is, because we're a podcast, his name is Mr. Andrew Rosas. Andrew, how are you? Hello, I am wonderful. So excited to be here. This is fantastic. I love Punch Mountain, so it is an honor to to be on this podcast. It's, it's a great, great show. It's, it's a little bit of a reunion. You know, we, we used to do comedy years ago. This feels like when you see the Beach Boys now at like an auto show where it's like, it's still the same guys I liked, but what is different about them? I don't quite know. <laughs> I'm going to get a bunch of fillers and a uh, and a hat to cover my uh, receding hairline. Yeah, I, I'm, my, I'm the Mike Love of this uh, whole group. I wanted to be Mike Love. Who am I, Al Jardine? <laughs> you universally hated Mike Love. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, I'll, I'll dive on that grenade. No, yeah, exactly. We we did comedy years ago, so this is a nice. It's nice to it's nice to be back in a very like action movie heisty way. It's like we are, we we got together for one last job. True Lies is the perfect fit for this episode. I have to I have to agree. Yeah, I this is this is one of my faves. And again, Andrew, you were the one who suggested uh, we do True Lies. Now, why did you pick this movie? What is your history with it? What is, why is it one of your faves? You know, it's interesting. I have a this was one of my parents' favorite movies. I think that's because this is a parent's action movie. I have some thoughts on it, but like I grew up not really allowed to watch this movie, but I snuck watching this movie because my parents had it on VHS. And of course, it's from, you know, James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger back together again. So like it brings me a lot of joy from my youth when I like I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of action movies, but this is one my parents had. So I snuck watching it. So, yeah, there's a little bit of like forbiddenness of it i guess if you want to like uh, pathologize it but also it <laughs> <Ooh> la la. <laughs> but i think it's also just a a good time at the movies although i so i rewatched it twice for this episode and something about it has changed in my opinion we'll get to that later i i, I suspect but uh but, but uh, i do still enjoy this movie very much david Hodder, i assume you've seen this movie before correct that is correct i saw this opening day in 1994 i saw it with my mom we went to the Commerce Park 8. It was an afternoon showing. Uh, so we went together. And I, I got to agree with you. You know, this is also, this lives in my memory as one of my favorites. Let me say that. I'll also tease the upcoming episode. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tease it to say this, this movie is like a really good steak surrounded by a lot of fat and gristle. As the years get on, that fat and gristle gets a lot harder to swallow. Metaphors aside, this is a fun movie. This was a fun time at the movies. 
And this is also one that I gravitate towards. For a long time, this felt like the cool pick, like James Cameron's sleeper pick, where it's like, yeah, yeah, Terminator 2 is good, whatever, Titanic, all those Oscars. Have you seen True Lies? This like little <laughs> indie, $100 million budget, like no one really talks about it, but it did kind of feel that way because it is, it's the kind of spectacle that sneaks up on you. You know, he's not creating the world of Avatar. I forget the planet or the people. You know, he's not trying things with a ton of special effects. Like everything kind of feels like a grounded action movie about my dad who's a spy. Like this is a wild ride. I enjoy the heck out of it. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to dissect some of the older pieces of this. But uh, Mac, what are your what are your thoughts? What's your history with True Lies? Well, first of all, people yelling at your uh, podcast player right now. Yes, it's Pandora and the Navi people. <laughs> Son of a bee. We all know this Avatar fan base, the, the most rabid <laughs> fan base in the world. They they truck with no errors, David. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Pilgrim fans and Avatar fans, one and two. They love it. They love them so much. Yeah, for some reason, I it took me like a long time to actually watch this movie all the way through. Like, I think I just would catch it a little bit on like TNT here and there. And I remember when I actually like watched all of it, I was kind of surprised at like its tone shifts. Like coming away from the movie, I'm like, man, uh, the biggest chunk of this movie is just kind of like a, a sitcom. I also remember when I first watched it, being surprised at how good Tom Arnold was in it. Mm. Now watching it again, he's not like solid gold, but he's fucking solid in this movie. This might be the best thing he's ever done. But yes, we're kind of dancing around a tip tap tippy toe. This movie is problematic as fuck. Uh, do not forget that. Because, you know, it's got uh, some weird depictions of un your classic unshaven Arabs. They're all terrorists, according to this movie. Yep. And the links that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character goes to, like, I don't know, secret agent super gaslight his wife is just uh, insane at, at some points. However, this also might be the most Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It's so much of his charm and his appeal crammed into, and you know, I'm going to use this word. It seems weird to talk about it with Arnold, but his, his versatility. Yeah. I was listening to the recent Mark Maron interview with uh, Schwarzenegger and they were talking about how Stallone is funny, but not funny on screen. I mean, compared to Arnold, I mean, he did do a lot of fucking comedies. I don't think he's like a comedic genius, but you know, this, this kind of is like a good marriage of, of him being a little uh, wacky and then also him being a fucking murderer. I'll say this. It was super fun to watch. Definitely some cringy parts, but we shall get into it. Before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search True Lies Plot on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions. So we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, is Helen a spy on True Lies? I'll answer a question with a question. What did the end of the movie mean to you? Are you kidding me, stupid? Hey, Andrew, what happens at the end of True Lies? Uh, the credits roll. Mac, uh, why is True Lies controversial? Well, for a lot of reasons, Andrew. The main one I can think of is that 95 horses died during the filming of this movie. Not even on camera. The crew just loves shooting horses. David, who is the villain in True Lies cast? What? Oh, so not in the movie True Lies? Who's the villain in the True Lies cast? That goddamn Charlton Heston, that sandwich stealer. <laughs> Andrew, are Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger friends? Mortal enemies. It is on site if anyone sees the other. Mac, what is the meaning of true lies? Nothing. It's a fucking nonsense title. There we go. <laughs> hey, before we discuss the story of a man who must lie to his partner every day to safeguard his country, let's check in with some friends who lie to their partners every day to protect their Funko Pop collections. That's us, kind of. I don't know. It's a friendship check-in. We're those friends. Uh, do you guys, right off the top, uh, this is just a joke, of course, but do you guys have any 
be honest. Do you have any Funko Pops? I do not. I do not. But I, I'll say this. If I found one that appealed to me, actually, you know what? I think I do. I think I was given a, a, a Daniel LaRusso Karate Kid as a gift before I left Texas. Um, so I do have one somewhere. But like, if I saw one that really, they've got a billion of them out now. So every oh God, so little many. nook and cranny is covered of pop culture. So like, if I found one to just an Aretha Franklin as the diner owner in the Blues Brothers, that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> hey man, if I found that on a shelf for five ninety nine or whatever, that's coming home with me. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why like things have to be immortalized. Like everything has to be immortalized in like Funko Pop and Lego. Like I like Legos, but I don't. I don't think that like making something to Lego inherently adds value. That being said, I own like five of them. Funko Pops, that is. <laughs> I just, I don't, I'm like, I, I don't really care for this style. I don't really get it. Uh, how many do you have? Oh, five at the moment. Maybe more later coming. But yes, it's just, they're so niche. <laughs> so fucking niche. Anyway, legit friendship check-in. David Hada, how you doing? I'm doing well. This recording so far has been a warm salve. It's been a soothing balm. Today was kind of a, it was kind of a blah day. Like we're starting to get the cold weather coming in but we're not quite into fall yet. So we haven't pulled out the radiators and the space heaters and what have you. And David, just to help our audience, you live on an offshore oil rig. Is this correct? No. Where do you live? That is correct. I live next to, I lived on, on an unmanned crusty burger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm outside of Denver, Colorado and what I like to call unincorporated Adams County. You know, we live next to like a meadow, so there's no neighbors or anything like that, but we do get the wind whipping in. So we've had to bring in the hammock. It's no longer hammock season. I did describe today as, or I did describe this as magnolia watching weather. <laughs> it yeah. feels like you just grab a big thick blanket, you get on the couch and you open up a vein. And I didn't mean, I was saying this to someone earlier, and I didn't mean for it to sound as, as brutal as it does. Until I heard it leave my mouth and be like, well, I don't mean it like that. I mean, emotionally open a vein. And like, that's how sure. my day's been. How, how is, uh, I'll tell you what, Andrew Rosas, our guest and our friend, how are you? What's a, what, Let's do a friendship check-in. Oh, it is. Uh, things are going uh, great. I'm uh, so happy to be here with you guys and to be to be cracking jokes again. Um, and uh, today, was, today was really good. I actually did uh, a, like an improv show at, at my work, uh, Rooster Teeth, this morning. I did a show called On the Spot. It was really, really fun. And then I watched this movie again in the middle of the day to like level set. I watched it when I was on my, I was on vacation a couple weeks ago uh, for the last, for the last couple of weeks. And I watched it on the plane, by the way, flawless plane movie. Oh my God is true. Lies a great plane movie. I didn't even, Oh my God, that, but it's on Hulu. So I downloaded it onto my iPad, took that thing on the plane. Perfect. Pitch perfect for a plane. And so I watched it on there and then I watched it again today to like reacquaint myself with the thing. But I'm, I'm doing really well. I, I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. This is a real treat for me. I do want to comment. I'm glad you clarified that you work at Rooster Teeth because when you started to say I did an improv show at my work, I was like, what kind of nightmarish hell must that be <laughs> working at like Microsoft or something? I was like, come on, guys. It's improv hour. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> Tie my noose. Also in the morning, like, all right, put the bagels <laughs> down, everybody. It's time for some improv comedy. A dog, I'm not like last week, just run over in the parking lot. Time for some comedy. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it was for my comedy job. <laughs> we all used to regularly do shows at this one improv theater in Austin that also offered like uh, improv training for corporations. You know, full disclosure, uh, I'm, I'm a graduate of the Cold Town Conservancy, conservatory, I don't know. I took all their improv classes, their pyramid scheme. And I do feel like it made me a better listener. However, if I showed up at work and I saw a bunch of improv people like, we're going to make y'all do improv today. 
I would swallow whatever I could grab just to get out of there. <laughs> like, oh no, I gotta go to the hospital because I um uh, ate a stapler. And like, no, you didn't. And then like, it's halfway down my throat. <laughs> Never breaking eye contact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I see that. I go for the fucking guard's gun at my work. Like, <laughs> <laughs> for his well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's over. So over. Mac Blake, how are you? I'm doing good, David and Andrew. Um, I got a new segment for this show. And, and I say new segment. I mean, it's something that happens a lot, but I don't know what, what to call it. Fight these feelings or don't fight the feeling. But but David, I I, had, I have feelings that I, I don't want. And in keeping with the theme of the show being action movies, uh, I want to, you know, kick them in the neck. I was driving my uh, adorable son. We were going to get frozen yogurt, or as he calls it, ice cream. And we're listening to... The New Little Mermaid soundtrack, uh, you know, from the, the movie that came out this year. And we're listening to the track. It's the uh, Part of Your World reprise where, you know, after she drags, uh, you know, local uh, drowning hunk Eric, you know, to shore, you know, she is, uh, you know, bolstered with emotion about, you know, she wants to be part of that world, right? And there's a part of the song right there where she sings, if I'm getting this wrong, I apologize, but something like, I don't know where, I don't know how. But something's starting right now. Watch and you'll see. And I was listening to that and I was wondering, uh, I was like, man, I wonder if when Hallie was singing this, because when she got cast as Little Mermaid, there was that same like, you know, 68 people on the internet that was like, oh, this character, this fake mermaid's white. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what what color are mermaids? Mermaid expert. You know, when she's like something starting right now, watch and you'll see. I was like, I wonder if she's like singing about herself. I wonder if that's kind of like chip on your shoulder. Like, and honestly, I was listening to it, man, she was just crushing this fucking song, crushing these notes. And I was like, so overcome with emotion. I started to like tear up in the car. And I was like, get these fucking tears out of my face. Like, I don't need this right now. Yeah. Honestly, you know, uh, you know, hats off to you, you know, Little Mermaid. You're, you're doing an amazing job, but I don't need that emotion on my way to orange leaf frozen yogurt. <laughs> Mac, I, I don't know. I, I have the same thing. I don't know if this has happened to you recently. I, I mean, I, you have children. I don't have children. But in the last, I would say, three years, I would say the, la- the back half of my 30s, I have become America's softest touch. I cry at any media. Like, I don't know what happened. Like, <laughs> shit hits me fucking hard, man. It'll be something like pretty innocuous. I haven't cried at a commercial yet. I know that's when it's over. Oh, I, there you go. Yeah, I'm not I've not done that yet. Yeah, a few things recently have really gotten me to my surprise. And I was like, I don't know where this is coming from, but and you got me. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe that, 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 but I sensed it as a shift. I don't know if it's the same for you guys. No, this is called your late 30s. And on behalf of Mac and myself, I say welcome, friend. Because, <laughs> yeah, probably like 36, 37 is when I became the softest touch about everything. Like, Lyrics and songs would speak to my specific situation. You know, I'd be in San Francisco riding the subway, singing along to maybe this time from the cabaret soundtrack. And I'm like, that's me. I'm Sally Bowles. And it's like, no, you're not, you moron. You're on your way to work. <laughs> yeah. Anytime anyone bets on themselves, like, I, I can't. I, they got me. Like, if I went to Long John Silver's and this dude who was like, literally like, you know, he, he just seemed like he was on fire. Like half of him is a singed like a Looney Tunes character. And I was like, are you okay, man? And he's like, you know what? I told myself I was going to do a good job today. And I did it. I'd be like, fucking goddamn it. (laughs) (laughs) You're the hero. We all reminds me of that 30 rock quote. Like you didn't believe in me, but I believed in myself. Just like the last scene in all movies. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hey, speaking of all movies, let's talk about one movie in particular. Are y'all ready to do this thing? Oh my gosh, Mac, uh, spy on your wife. We're going in. That was unpleasant. You caught me off guard. <laughs> well, look, that's what happens on the spy game. Time to up yours. What? That's not. Again, we're struggling here. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta return those shirts. It does not translate. David, just in case someone has never seen True Lies or it has been a minute since they've seen it, just a level set. Can you read the back of the box description? Yes, sir. Be prepared to be blown out of your seat as the... Hold on, let me take that again. (laughs) Be prepared to be blown out of your seat as the action adventure team of Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Cameron, Aliens Terminator 2. Sorry, I gotta gotta interrupt you. Blown out of your seat is so fucking funny. It's it's the be prepared to be blown out of your seat. It's not even like, get ready to be blown out. It's like, okay... A seat blowing out is about to happen. Be prepared for it. Now we can commence it. Like, this yeah. is, I'm sorry. I'm going to leave that first take in there. <laughs> yeah, you will be blown out of your seat is one thing. But no, be prepared to. It's going to happen. <laughs> it, it's not going to blow your mind. It's not going to blow you away. At some point, you'll be seated. And then now you will be, I don't know, on the floor standing. It doesn't matter. You'll be blown out of your seat. <laughs> Settle your affairs. Contact your loved ones. Prepare yourself to be blown out of your seat. Death comes for us all. Enjoy your feature presentation. I'm too much of a good boy to, to search for it, but I wonder if blown out of your seat shows pops up anything on Pornhub. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm glad I made room for that. <laughs> <laughs> Clear the runway, guys. Max got something to say. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Special Agent Harry Tasker, a top spy in the ultra-secret Omega Sector. Although to his wife Helen, Jamie Lee Curtis, he's just a boring computer salesman. When Harry's two lives unexpectedly collide, both he and Helen find themselves in the clutches of international terrorists fighting to save not only their marriage, but their lives. Jammed with incredible special effects, True Lies is an exhilarating mix of non-stop action and romantic comedy. 1994, 141 minutes, directed by James Cameron, rated R. Guys, are you... Are you prepared to be blown out of your seat? I'm, a, I'm a prepared to be blown out of my seat. I have. I take uh, exception to the last line of this. Non-stop action, that is my biggest problem with this. There's quite a bit of stopped action in this movie. Lots of sections where no action is happening. And I blame the romantic comedy. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. There shouldn't be an and. Non-stop action and. No, wait, well, hold on. I thought we were non-stopping. Okay, how does this movie start? All right, gentlemen, this movie starts in Switzerland, where secret agent Harry Tasker, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, is trying to break into a party thrown by artificionado and potentially shady bad guy Jamal Khaled. Harry steals Khaled's financial data and transmits it to his partners Gib and Faisal, played by Tom Arnold and Grant Haslove, respectively, and still manages to make a little time to tango with art dealer and potentially shady bad gal Juno Skinner, played by Tia Carrere. Hey, the relic hunter. Sure. Harry makes a secret agent-style exit from the party and our first action set piece we'll call Here's My Invitation. After returning from the secret mission, Harry travels to the suburbs. Harry arrives home to his bored wife, Helen, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and his angsty teen daughter, a very young Eliza Dushku. So I want to talk about, I want to start off by talking about this score. Uh, this was done by Brad Fidel, but like, it starts off very jaunty. In fact, if we could just play a little bit of the audio here. Like, my memory of True Lies is more menacing than this. I wasn't expecting, like, it's, it's got a fanfare that seems tonally inconsistent with what is happening. In this uh, spy thriller that's about to happen for the next two and a half yeah. hours. 
Yeah, I don't want to uh, be too down on on Brad. I will say the only times I noticed the score, it was in kind of like a mm, really like <laughs> I there wasn't a, a moment where I was like, man, this this track's a banger, right? I just uh, yeah, it felt off at times, but uh, overall, great job, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. Brad Fatale. I hope you're. <laughs> I hope you're a, a good guy living a good life. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I agree with you. Like for the most part, I feel like it's kind of inoffensive, but when it sticks out, it sure does stick out as being like, uh, did we want to get like a second pass at maybe some like themes for this scene? The scenes. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. For sure. All right. Here we see Arnold, you know, portraying Harry Tasker and we, we see Harry like breaking into this like suave super party. And he does it in these various like super secret agent ways. He's like underwater, blowtorching off the bar on like a steel gate. He removes a wetsuit and he's wearing like a, a perfect tux, etc. So Arnold as a suave secret agent, man, how far have we come? How far has he come? <laughs> Did you guys buy this right away? Like when Arnold started doing these like secret agent things, were you like, this is goofy? Or did how long did it take to to buy him in this role? I guess is my question. Two and a half hours and counting. You know, I it was I didn't really buy him in this role, but I'll say this. Like, I mean, it's fun to watch him have fun. And I do get the sense he was having fun making this movie. But like, even when I saw this as a teenager, I got the feeling that Arnold in this role in this movie in general was there to take the piss out of like James Bond or spy movies in general, where they're they're kind of there's a little stuffiness to them. Um, so let's maybe rip the sleeves off of that shirt a little bit. But I like that in the 90s. If an action actor wanted to diversify, they just stuck him in more diverse action. It wasn't like, okay, let me do my Spider-Man movies and then you can let me do my Amazon Prime Prestige movie or whatever. It was, let me do my Terminator 2 and then I could really stretch out and do a different kind of action movie. Right, yeah. Like playing the same sport, just different position. Yeah, it wasn't exactly. going too far afield with 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 the choices for roles. I totally agree with you, David. Like, I don't think I buy him as this kind of like suave, like debonair secret agent the whole time. And now that we are talking about it, I think I wasn't supposed to. I will say at the very least that I, what is abundantly clear is that Schwarzenegger's charisma off the fucking charts in this movie. And I think that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting for for the cognitive dissonance of I don't buy this. Like this guy is sneaking into a party, like as a secret agent and no one's going, that's the, I mean, that's the conceit of all Schwarzenegger movies. It's like, why is this Austrian guy, the sheriff of this small town? <laughs> Nor that it doesn't, that doesn't matter. Like just a suspension of disbelief, just buy it and have fun. And I think that this was one of those situations, just like buy the ticket, take the ride. He's going to be a fun, charismatic like actor. This, this entire thing, which he is, he is from back to front. Yeah. yeah, you know, you're right, because there's a, a moment here in the beginning where, you know, he's speaking different languages, he being, uh, you know, Harry, Schwarzenegger's character. He's speaking different languages to different characters, and at some point, the caption, you know, it has his dialogue, but then it says, perfect Arabic, like, in perfect Arabic. The idea that, like, you know, Schwarzenegger does not speak perfect English, so there's no fucking way he speaks, you know, perfect Arabic. And I think, yeah, that's the movie being, like, a little, definitely super tongue-in-cheek about, you know, him as a suave super spy. But... Again, you know, you're you're right. We don't need it because he's trading off his image as an action hero. And so the idea of him as an action hero is what the movie's selling us. And we already fucking bought it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he's spying his way through the through this party. He's trying to sneak his way up uh, to steal uh, Jamal Khaled's financial information and transmit it to his buddies in the van, uh, Gib and Faisal. And that's going to be Tom Arnold and Grant Hesloff, uh, George Clooney's producing partner. And like right away, you get the sense, you know, from the conversations happening over comms and then the conversations happening between Gabe and Faisal 
This movie's got a real Little League sleepover vibe. I think that's why it does appeal to like the younger parts of us or maybe the more memory sentimental parts of us because it feels like something we saw when we were a kid and it was like, all right, we'll let you stay up late and watch True Lies. And like, it just, it has that level of humor that we did as children, but watching it now, it's kind of grating to put it politely. Yeah, I think it's interesting because like, you know, I said, this is like my parents' favorite action movie. And I think that that, like, there is something to that, that this is kind of the, the heir to like the stars of this movie. Jamie Lee Curtis, Arnold Schwarzenegger are aging. They're getting older. They're like, they're our parents' age, late 60s, early 70s. So like they're like evolving out of that kind of misogynistic 80s action into these roles. They were becoming the characters on screen that our parents were also becoming parents of teenagers. <laughs> yep. Like, you know, Elijah Dushku, who was probably around our age in this movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like it's 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 a reflection of like what was actually ha- what was actually happening. But I think that there was a bit of that absolutely right carried over from the 80s, that kind of like that misogyny, that like icky in a vacuum or icky outside of the context of 1994. But at this party, Harry bumps into Tia Carrera playing Juno Skinner, who's like some sort of like well-renowned art dealer. And then as the uh, security is like closing in on Harry, he's like, I know a way to sort of blend in at the same time, keep an eye on this, uh, my enemies approaching. I'll do a seductive tango dance, you know, with with Juno here. And I have to say, this, this may seem like a weird move. Like, oh, you're trying to keep a low profile, but you're like doing this like very dramatic tango dance. But look, I, we've all been to like a wedding or like a family gathering or, or just like someplace where like, oh, there's a live music and a dance floor. There's always one couple that fucking goes for it. Mm-hmm. Like there's always <laughs> like, oh, uh, we're doing some swing dancing. Oh, look, Jesus Christ, here's the, uh, you know, 2001 St. Louis swing off champions all of a sudden are on the fucking dance floor. <laughs> so the fact that like, you know, here we go, this uh, giant uh, Austrian hunk, his gorgeous Wayne's World date are you know, like very uh, overtly cutting a rug. It's like, no, that that's that seems natural to me. Yeah, there's always the one. I remember in high school, there was a dance. It wasn't quite one of the major dances. It was just a sort of like offshoot sort of cotillion dance Mm -hmm. and i was very shy i got invited you know sort of a last minute kind of thing i go there and i'm like you know what i'm gonna dance i'm I'm gonna get out on the dance floor and i go out on the dance floor and there's already two other guys and they're like setting each other up to do flips on the dance floor like one guy's catching the foot come on and the other guy's doing the flip and i sat back down that like that scared (laughs) me straight just like walking up to the dance floor just Keep walking across the dance floor to the punch <laughs> ball. It's like, nope, I just keep on walking. Whip, whip, whip. Just clearing off the sandwich table one big scoop. <laughs> Into a trash bag, throw the trash bag over <laughs> your shoulder. Yeah, I'm sandwich claws. I, I gotta I gotta say, I love Tia Carrera in this role. I think she does like a great, sultry, baddie. Coming off of Wayne's World, that's like the only thing I'd ever seen her in up until that point. Coming off of that into this role, I thought she was fantastic. You know, credit goes to the casting director of this movie. I think they got every major part right. And I'm not quite sure we could say that about a lot of movies on the mountain. Like even down to like sixth, seventh, eighth build, as we come to find out later in this movie, everyone is bringing their A game and it shows. Yeah, and I'll say one of my punch-ups right now. I think Tia Carrera is great. I wish there was more of her. Mm-hmm. I wish she got to feature a little bit more, you know, instead of just being like a sinister baddie. 
I wish she had some like fighting skills. I wish we got a little bit more out of her because her potential was not fully tapped in this role. Mm-hmm. Which speaks to, I think, a larger issue that I have with this movie uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah, I, I yeah, un, un, untapped, you know, unrealized, fully realized potential. Yeah. Oh, are you teasing this movie's treatment of women? We'll talk about it throughout the show. Uh, no. But Harry has accomplished his objective and it's now time for him to make a very dramatic exit from this evil party. And he does so in our very first action set piece. The, the action, you know, him escaping is a shootout. He's running down a mountain. And by him, I mean a stunt double. The action here in this part, it's like not meant to wow us, you know? It's more sort of setting up his character, like showing like, oh, he's a secret agent. And here he's basically, you know, escaping the clutches of these super villains. With little to no effort. So to me, you know, it was more of like a storytelling action set piece than a showcase or a a stunt spectacular or whatever you want to call it. For sure. Like, you know, going back to the thesis statement of this movie where it's not your daddy's spy movie, I think that's what True Lies wanted to get across where it's like, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to make an exit from this party, but it's not going to be the suave, surreptitious kind of exit. He'll blow the doors off the place and bang two dogs' heads together, which I thought was hilarious in 1994. Not so hilarious now that I love animals. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's only saved by the fact that they are the fakest rubber dogs ever, <laughs> ever produced, ever presented on screen. But yeah, like in, 90, in 1994, I was like, hey, hey. and now when I see it, I'm like, yeah, thank God those are rubber dogs. Because that's just like, that's just like so zany. It's when the movie like, I mean, it's like the first 10 minutes gets like real zany. Like, it, yeah, it, it kind of shocked me rewatching it. You might be like, Mac and David, wait, someone is mean to dogs. Why didn't you put a wuss warning on this? Well, it's true that he bangs the heads of two dogs together. But before you can even go, oh, my God, the uh, movie cuts back to one of the dogs like fine and just being like, what the fuck? Like, it's, it's almost like a Three Stooges moment. Like you might, the dogs might as well have, like knock their heads together. And then one of the Dobermans being like, nyar, 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 nyar. it just... It, don't don't worry about it. It is it is something to prepare the audience for. Where like there is going to be very broad comedy in this movie. There's going to be a lot of slapstick in this moment. It plays a lot like Looney Tunes, where they cut right back to the dogs getting up, and there really should just be like a whap, 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 kind of sting. But like it, this is a cartoonish action movie. And I mentioned it, and this is something I did not really notice the first time I saw this movie. The first times I saw this movie on TNT. But very prominent during this action set piece, Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double on screen, you know, showing his face. Like running to the camera. That's the thing. This isn't, you know, it's not James Cameron trying to hide the shots. You know, it really is like, this is the best footage we got. And Arnold refuses to run in snow. So like, you know, noticing Arnold's stunt double really took me out of the movie to the point where I was I had such an appreciation for today's action stars where like they're doing the training, they're doing the fight choreography, they're doing the ballistics training. They they want to be able to sell the moment. And this pampered movie star in 1994 is like, I'm not running through snow. It's like, you're an action hero, dude. This is no good. Yeah, it's like, uh, I guess we'll just uh, backlight the whole scene and hope to God no one has 4K <laughs> restorations of this at any point. No one can see this in HD on a TV the size of a you know football field. Yeah, it it really. I will say, going from rubber dogs to obvious stunt double might be a bridge too far. Even in like the first like ten minutes of this movie. I mean, again, seeing rewatching this movie twice uh, in short succession like uh, revealed a lot of cracks. I, I would say, but yeah, that was a very silly, very silly moment. 
It's funny you mentioned that now. It's or it's finally clicking into place because this movie is notoriously not on Blu-ray because James Cameron, I think with this one and with The Abyss as well, where he wants to sort of wait or he wants to, you know, work on it until it is the quality of product that he that befits James Cameron's reputation and his his meticulousness. So I wonder if if this is one of those things where he's just sitting in the editing bay like, how can I fix his face? This is just going to be this stunt guy no matter what I do to it. I don't know how vehemently uh, James Cameron is uh, against like AI technology, but that seems like something a grad student could do right now, like <laughs> with, with, yeah. to a pretty convincing degree. So I, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe when, and you're, I, I totally forgot that. That's right. There's like this, yeah, it's this in the abyss that like people have been clamming for blue, Blu-ray restorations of that just do not exist. Yeah. Well, maybe if the uh, avatar, uh, the, you know, blue aliens ever go on strike, uh, James Cameron will, you know, have enough uh, time to schedule to fix the face because yes, uh, fix that face, uh, uh, Jimmy. But Harry makes his escape and then, you know, he returns back from his mission and all this super spy is returning to the suburbs. What? He's got a house and he, he crawls into bed and there is his sleepy wife wearing a full 1950s nightgown and it's Jamie Lee Curtis. He's a, uh, turns out our suave secret agent is a family man. Yeah, he sneaks in the middle of the night Cuddles up to his wife. She won't wake up to greet him, I guess. And so Harry just rolls over and decides to go to sleep. And then his wife flops on top of him. So this movie's trying to say a lot as quickly as it can with this relationship. But it left me asking this question, and I'll ask the question for the panel. Is Harry unhappy? Hmm. I mean, wow. Way to stop me dead in my fucking tracks with that question. That's a very very interesting question because... Uh, you know, thinking about just like, you know, story structure and movies and like, you know, kind of defining your like protagonist wants and needs and stuff like that in in the setup of your movie. That seems kind of uh, murky at this point, because like Harry seems to be satisfied with his like, I I, I don't even know if like, it's clearly a not good marriage, but like he seems pretty oblivious to that. And so, you know what? Now I'm saying it. No, he's not. He's not unhappy. I think he's very happy. I think are they in, in the kind of just like I do my job. I go to work. I've taken this whole life for granted, but it's fine because I'm just I'm a spy who, who has fun. Yeah, I agree. I think he's very satisfied with his job, and he has taken his double life for granted, at least half of it. You know, the the his home life, which is weird because he has to want to be a husband and a father mm-hmm. because it seems like the easiest thing for him would be like going to secret missions. And then, you know, when he comes home, like, you know, just, I don't know, sleep on a fucking military base or like go to a nondescript apartment with nothing on the walls and just like fall asleep. It's so much extra work uh, for him to lead this double life that he does not need to lead. So it's like all that effort, he must want to do it. But I think maybe one of the things that the movie is going for here, and oh my God, I'm doing some work for the movie at this point, is the lies we tell ourselves and the way we get very comfortable with them. Sure. And, and so his impression of himself is like this ultimate like father and husband. And he's like, yeah, I've stopped putting any effort into it. But, uh, you know, my my kid is perfect and my wife uh, could not be more in love with me or thinks I'm her hero. And so, yeah, I think he's happy, but I think he's you know also not paying attention. Yeah, I, it was it was more of a question to me in the moment. And, and that's obviously why I asked the question. But definitely having this conversation you know, the movie is, is going to set up later that Helen is the one who's unhappy with her marriage or, you know, it's just kind of become stagnant. But I, I think you bro- you're both right. Harry is just content with this or it's like, 
I go home, I work, I come home. What else do they want from me? Like, I, you know, this movie will play on and you start to peel back the layers of like how much his neglect and his, you know, uh, his time management skills have negatively affected the family. But like I, at this moment, I, I do agree. I'm not quite sure he understands. But Harry and Gib uh, return to work the next day to get chewed out by their boss, not Nick Fury, played by gun hugger Charlton Heston. After a very cuttable scene where Juno Skinner gets slapped, we see Helen and Dana at home waiting to celebrate Harry's birthday. Not now, wife of 15 years. I've got to go on a hotel chase. So the next morning after he returns from the mission, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, a.k.a. Helen, is like, oh, how is your your computer sales trip to to where? Switzerland, Geneva, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> And he he gives this little report, and let's, let's listen a little bit of the audio. Oh, it was fantastic. You wouldn't believe it. You should have been there. We were the big hit of the show. We did new model ordering system, the 680 I told you about. I can write up an order, and immediately as soon as the customer's name comes up, you see what his credit line is, what he has ordered in the past, what discount he has gotten, every little detail. Perfect. It's fantastic. So I love the computer business. So there's about this little patch of dialogue here. It's just, I don't know, so funny. Like, I love the computer business. You could tell as soon as they were like cut, he was just like, God, gross, get these words out of my mouth. The, the way he like emphasized, there's a, it is a particular read that sticks out because it's like, he's like, I love the computer business. He hits, he hits love particularly hard. Like, or just, or not particularly, or just like ever so much. And it is just like such a weird line. But this is also, I had to remember at the time, 1994, where computers could be anything. Like, it was, such a, <laughs> it, was it was like newer technology for like home, like, you know, having like home, multiple, maybe multiple home personal computers. It was a very like, you know, the internet was just starting to be a thing for like people in their homes. So I feel like this is, yeah, again, part of that era where computers could be anything. So it, it felt like a very, like the way like, as salesmen and ad men in the 50s were just like the catch-all career for all people in movies. It's just like, eh, it's nondescript. You can do anything. Just like, oh yeah, 90s um, computer business. Perfect just like has computer business. Just the, uh, the most front name I've ever, like, you know, career you could possibly imagine. So yeah, yeah, it was very, very silly. I loved it. Yeah, it also ringed like really fake. Like the details he gave were great. And then the, I love the computer business. He might as well have been like, uh, it's like, yeah, the trip was great. I love not being a spy. Like, <laughs> seemed a little much. Talking about it now, it makes me want to go back and find Arnold's press tour promoting this movie. Like, did he go on The Tonight Show or something like that? And he was talking about it. He's like, so Bartleby's a spy and Bartleby's like a real nerd. Like, does he really hit that nerd talk when he's talking about it? Well, I feel like he's, this, this is, this is, you know, you could put the like, Walmart end cap bargain bin collection of Arnold Schwarzenegger doing like the the Vegas jobs in America, like in Jingle All the Way, he's a mattress salesman, like mattress salesman, <laughs> and this one computer salesman, just like yeah. again, just absolutely, just it's not important. Just get to the next, just get to the next action set piece, which I really feel yeah. like we're, the movie is trying to do. Because <laughs> that's a big problem in this movie. It has a lot to do in not a lot of time. Like it has a ton to do in not a lot of time. And so like, yeah, just keep it, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. But it also takes a lot of time. <laughs> it sure does. But as Harry and Helen prepare for work and their daughter, Dana prepares for school using uh, some fancy spy gadget. Harry notices Dana stealing some money from his wallet. The first crack starts to appear in the foundation of this, this perfect family. And, you know, he's, he's kind of stunned that the, about this 
minor crime that his daughter uh, took a couple of bucks. But uh, Tom Arnold's character seizes upon this to be a, a moment to be a real creep and talk about how his daughter is probably already fucking his 14-year-old daughter. Yeah. So I imagine Harry lives outside of the loop. I imagine there it, it is quite a commute to get to his offices in the middle of Washington, D.C., so Gibbs spends the entire car ride, seemingly, and while they're walking through the offices of work, talking about Dana, talking about her life, like, I understand the movie is cutting it down for our sake, but the more I think about it, the grosser it gets. <laughs> yeah, that house of his is in Arlington, Virginia. He's driving like an hour and 40 minutes into like the de- like in, in traffic to get to work. It's like, realistically, he would have popped Tom Arnold with two bullets and been like, Stop, stop it. There's no way that conversation lasted that long about my daughter. 60 minutes of locker room euphemisms for my daughter's private parts. Like, you're walking to DC. But they get back to their uh, headquarters of Omega Sector. All right. And uh, their boss is Charlton Heston, which I remember in 1994 being like, oh, what a cool cameo. They got Chuck Heston. Now it's like, oh, that's kind of gross. But uh, seriously, I don't know why Marvel did not sue because he is trying as hard as he can to be a comic accurate Nick Fury, except uh, with all white hair. Maybe that's what saved the lawsuit. Okay, stop everything. I, I have to interrupt yes. you. Because I think the reason why they didn't sue... I Do you happen to know the name of Charlton Heston's character in this movie? Uh, I know they don't say it in the movie. I remember because you wrote it down. Spencer Trilby? Spencer Trilby. This goes in the Darren McCord, Jean-Claude Van Damme Hall of Fame of names for characters that do not befit the actor. like. Uh, I play a, a tough secret agent head named Spencer Trilby. Like, no, I had to make note of that. I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, uh, that's weird because you absolutely stole the name of a trumpet player from the 30s. Like, <laughs> that's like, it would be more impressive if you actually knew where he was. Like this gravelly, <laughs> like, you know, fucking two packs a day voice with the eye patch, which is like, again, such a choice. Like, yeah, completely incongruous character to name ratio there. <laughs> was he cast in the movie because he was in, uh, he played Omega Man and this is the Omega Sector? Oh, I wish you hadn't asked that. <laughs> that really unlocks a lot of this movie for me. I think, yes, yes, you're right, Mac. Oh, that sounded too condescending. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> These are the dumb questions other people don't want to ask because they're <laughs> stupid. Uh, but the, the our boys only lead is... Tia Carrera's character, Juno. And so they go to her art dealership warehouse where it is revealed that she's an obvious villain because the people working in this warehouse, they're all hunks. Like they, they're all like, it's just a, a beefcake parade. No, one, those are henchmen. How do you not recognize henchmen, Harry Tasker? Come on. I mean, central casting henchmen, like could not get better henchmen. Incredible. He could have picked up a henchman calendar in the lobby. They were so hunky. But we find out that, that Juno Skinner is secretly, you know, she she meets with Harry and she's very nice. She They talk about art. But then once Harry leaves, we find out she's doing work for uh, Abu Aziz, uh, the head of uh, a terrorist group called Crimson Jihad. Abu Aziz is going to be played by Art Malik. And I got to say, I don't like this scene. I'll just come out, come right out and say it because it's Abu Aziz coming in, slapping Juno around like, you dumb bitch, don't you know that there's spies everywhere and you can't slip up or anything like that so i don't care for it it's actually quite cuttable but credit to abu aziz he is so good at staying in character because he walks into juno's office while there's like a secretary in there and he's so feeble he's like wringing his hands together eyes on the ground like 
Miss Skinner, can I please talk to you a moment? Like, you're the head of a terrorist organization. You don't also have to be this good at acting. Yeah, man. Yeah, you're, you're wrong career. You should be. <laughs> you should be on a, in a touring theater company. Yeah, you know I mean, this this, this terrorism racket ain't for you. Yeah, I I completely agree that this is like a super cuttable scene. But again, it feels like because this movie is two movies, it's an action movie and like a romantic comedy. You constantly have to like kind of keep checking in with the global terror plot that's also happening. And the job, the movie does kind of a bad job at balancing that. So you kind of need this scene. I mean, I wish it could have been another, I wish the scene could have been different, but I think you need it plot wise in terms of just like laying some track that you don't get because it's so so often the fact that there are a tier career and these the, these terrorists uh, working behind the scenes kind of fades into the background and you sort of forget that it's happening. And so again, it feels like a scene like this needs to happen. But like, yeah, we can we can do without the like slapping Tia Carrera around. I feel. Yeah, he slaps her once, called her as a bitch and a whore. This movie, by the way, is way too comfortable calling its female characters bitches. Just like uh, drink every time it happens, and you'll be uh, dead. So he stops for the first time. You're like, oh, okay. You know, sometimes uh, with movies, you have villains where there's a point of view that's somewhat relatable. Like I can see how they're the hero of their own story, but not this dude. When he slaps for the first time, you're like, all right, this guy assigned his murder permission slip. I can watch this guy die uh, guilt-free. And then when he slaps her a second time, God, I would have loved if T. Carrera grabbed his hand mid-slap and been, she's like, you forget yourself or something like that. But didn't that happen? So he slaps her a second time. And at that moment, it's like, okay, he's now signed his grisly murder permission slip like now i want this character to die and i'm going to enjoy his death yeah is what uh <laughs> his, uh, this character just did oh <laughs> uh, would you like the grisly upgrade for this oh yeah actually i would I'm gonna, <laughs> put the box here with that grisly upgrade yeah can abu aziz win a darwin award when he dies is that okay <laughs> <laughs> quick question for you two uh what how did you watch this movie what format did you you watch it on or streaming platform uh, I have this on my Plex server, so I have a digital copy of it. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I I have it. Uh, I it's on Hulu. It was uh, it might still be, but it was streaming on Hulu, so I downloaded it onto my uh, iPad, and then I watched it on watch it once on my iPad, and then once on my TV, big TV, with the with the sound system, and like wanted to like really really take it in. Mm-hmm. I also watch this on Hulu, and I guess I have the with commercials level of uh, Hulu <laughs> because uh, this this. Um, Streaming presentation was front loaded with a lot of commercials, specifically for McDonald's in terms of like, hey, please come work at McDonald's. And it gave a stat that, (laughs) you know, when the commercials are on, I'm like, I'm just going to zone out until they're over or sometimes mute them. But it was like one out of every eight people has worked at a McDonald's. What? Is that true? Uh, That can't possibly be true. I'll bet that's true. That can't possibly. One out of every eight people has worked at a McDonald's? Look to your left. Look to your right. <laughs> now look catty corner. And then the other catty corner. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. I, I wanted to see the small print on that. Like, how does that? I, I don't think that math is right. W- what do they count as work? Like the filet of fish? Like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you pick up a napkin while you were eating here? Well, you're on the job, bitch. <laughs> like, you... <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you try to suck the McFlurry through that straw spoon that they like, ate? <laughs> yep. You're working. But back to the movie. Thank you, McDonald's. Aziz recognizes this hairy dude is a threat. And I don't mean a hearsuit individual. He's like, he's a spy. We got to track him. And, you know, Harry and Gib are like, we got someone following us. He's like, let's try to lose them in this mall, I think. Hotel mall? Where were they? It's the Georgetown Mall, I believe. Yeah. 
It's in the DC area. Okay. Oh, could have been Pentagon City. Uh, I don't know. But here we begin a two-part action set piece, which is a lot of fun. Part one, we will call Men's Room Melee. And it is a uh, uh, a shootout in a, in a, in a men's bathroom. What would you think of this, uh, this scene, David? I thought it was okay. You know, I I vary on it. I've, I, I Sometimes I think it's awesome. Sometimes I think it's just okay. I think I'm currently settled on okay because there's also other action in the movie to compare it to, if that makes sense. But this is just a fun shootout. You know, you've got two-on-one, eventually three-on-one against Arnold. He's using the studio space. He's banging heads into urinals. He's hiding in stalls. I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I got a question, but I'll, uh, Andrew, what did you think of this one? I remember when I originally saw this as a kid, I loved this scene. I thought it was so fun. And, you know, this bathroom scene walked so that the Eastern Promises knife fight could run. I love a fight scene in a bathroom, <laughs> a white tile bathroom. One, just from a sound design perspective, fighting in a tile room creates a very unique sound and that, that feels, again, like very kinetic. But what's interesting is like, again, why and watching it, rewatching it uh, recently is how much this kind of is a departure from a lot of other James Cameron action, which is for the most part, pretty humorless. Like the action set pieces are cool. Like they are cool as shit in James, action, uh, James Cameron action set pieces. And this one, you got a guy also using the bathroom and they bust into the stall on him and it's very like silly. They're like silly moments in this very serious action set piece, which felt different to me than a lot of other James Cameron action. So I I, I enjoyed it as a kid and now I feel like it's a little silly, but then marked with like very serious stuff of like, like cool shots of like diving through the, the, the stall door and like sliding across a wet floor to grab a gun, like cool moves and shots and stuff like that. And then cool off, like eh, pretty C minus, I would say on that, uh, on that line. But anyway, that's, yeah, that's how I felt about it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the guy in the stall because I've got a question for the panel. What are you doing if you're the guy on the toilet? Because he stays committed to the bit for a very long time, if you mean my knowing. And I'm not quite sure I would have that level of dedication yeah, the second, like, when, like, the physical fight is happening, whether I'm done or not, I'm pulling up my pants and getting the fuck out of there. Like, the second that he breaks off a hairdryer and smashes him over the head with it, I'm like, you know what, gentlemen, dirty as I may be, I'm leaving this bathroom. And then when an AK-47 comes out, like, good God. Yeah, insane. Let me open up my copy of the quotable Mac Blake. There's two things in life you can't rush, a woman and a shit. And <laughs> if you're mid-work, you... You just maybe have to to write it out. (laughs) But yeah, I would at least pull my pants up, which this guy never does. I mean, if he's of the mindset where it's like, oh, if I don't move, I'm invisible. Like I can, (laughs) that sort of dumb logic, I could see in a panic situation that making sense to me. So I might have just done what this guy did, just try to. Try to finish that deuce. I'll be honest with you. Here's my minor punch up then. I You'd see the fight going on, but then you also see the guy's legs under the stall and they just si- slowly go up. Like he just lifts his legs so nobody sees him under the stall. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the second bullets start flying, the work I'm doing in there is getting it done a lot faster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> once I hear like yeah, shots working out. Uh, yeah. This train just went express. Yeah, especially when the water from all the the busted uh, pipes or whatever starts like flooding in. Uh, Dude, your pants are getting soaked. Take them up from around your ankles. But imagine 1994, if Arnold Schwarzenegger had like cocked his fist the same way Henry Cavill did 
in that Mission Impossible movie, he would have been a trendsetter. Ooh. Oh my God, they would have elected him to public office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of our bigger states too. <laughs> one that he can't pronounce. California. God, it's God, California. That's how he said it. It's got a D. But as Arnold is making quick work of these hunky henchmen, Aziz enters with a gun and you know he's about to unload on Arnold. Arnold dives out of the way. And so one of the other bad guys takes all the bullets and, but the thing is, is like Aziz, you know, he, he thinks he's going to shoot Arnold. Arnold dives out. And so he ends up shooting his compatriot. But he ends up shooting his compatriot like a beat too long. Like you're shooting your own friend and you go, oh, no, I, I'm shooting my own friend. I better stop. Bah, okay. Just like <laughs> it was like a couple more bullets. I don't think he liked that guy. It was like he thought the bullets were going to let his friend down. Like he was holding a proton pack and he was lowering a ghost. Like he was gently putting him down. Uh, that's what you get for setting a thing on burst fire. It's going to fire three bullets no matter what, no matter if you pull the trigger once. But yeah, truly like some, I mean, we got a little bit of machine gun shimmy in that. That was a, that might have been a little bit of machine gun shimmy from our, from our very hunky uh, Arnold sized beefcake. They really got a guy, his stature duke down in this bathroom scene, so to speak. And I have a, a punch up here because this movie will not hesitate to cut away to like a different perspective or different characters if it means like a hilarious joke. I had to think they shot this scene and cut it out. The scene I'm talking about is like cut to the mall security office and then like the phone ringing and being like, what's that gunfire? And just like hanging up and be like, that's DC for you. Or like, uh, like, oh, it sounds like those fat cats on Capitol Hill. We'll check it out later. Because where the fuck is mall security where this eight minute gunfight is going on? And there's like, uh, you know, Aziz comes in, blasts his friend, with, almost empties, like sprays his friend with bullets, almost empties a clip into his friend, and then goes into the stall room, shoots all the stalls. There's a long beat of silence while he's kicking open the thing. There is a lot of time for an armed response from mall security. It's not like, oh, what's going on? There's like, there's like a solid, I would say like four or five minutes where like someone else could have like rushed in there. And maybe raise the stakes of the action sequence, which I think it might have, might have, could have used, perhaps. My initial thought is that there was a scene not unlike in Last Crusade, where the librarian is hitting books with the with a stamp at the same time that Indy is banging on the floor. Mm. But the idea that that's a scene like that could have gone on for four or five minutes delights me so much. I want that to exist so badly. Oh, like maybe they're in the arcade of the mall playing uh, Time Crisis or whatever was out in 1994. <laughs> and they're like, oh, the gun sounds are pretty accurate on these uh, this Duck Hunter arcade or whatever. There you go. Yeah, the, the like looking at the gun, of course, like the old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, Man, wild. <laughs> yeah. But Aziz takes a shot at the king and misses. And so now Harry is now uh, hot on the tail of Aziz. It is a second part of this action second piece, which we will call True Chase. And Aziz is like making his way, you know, out of the mall. He's like, you know, firing at people. And at some point, is it Gibb? Is that his name? Tom Arnold's character? Yes. yes. Albert Gibson. Gibb is like, freeze. And Aziz opens fire on Gibb, who hides behind a light post. And I say hides behind, you know, he basically, he sticks out. It's like, he's obviously like, you know, a, a normal human is not the width of a, a light post. And however, you know, even though a, a clip is unloaded in his direction, he's not hit at all. And so after Aziz stops firing, Tom Arnold steps from, from behind this uh, stick, which is, did not hide him. And he like pats himself down to see if he's shot and he's not. 
And he's like, woo. And then he kind of like kisses his hand and he leaves a, a kiss on the light post. And uh, why why do I mention this? Because I thought it was funny, y'all. I laughed at the wacky joke. The wacky joke the movie made made me laugh. Yeah, he does the, he's just like, okay, chest, stomach, balls, fine. Kiss post. I, it got me too. Still gets me. Got me when I was a kid. Got, got me today. I still love that little bit. That little bit of business is so good. I'm absolutely a sucker for it. Although as time goes on, I do wish there was like a family guy or a robot chicken where they parody that scene and Tom Arnold just gets ripped open like a raptor claw goes through him. Uh, I would not wish a family guy or a robot chicken on anyone. Uh, so that's... <laughs> a robot chicken to you, good sir. Robot chicken. Hey, we're a twelve-minute show with filler. Like we can't, we can't write twelve minutes of fucking jokes. We have to have throwaway gags just to take up space. Those fucking crooks who took all that money. I went to Comic Con one year, and I was there for a Venture Brothers panel. That Venture Brothers panel was kind of like an Adult Swim panel, and eighty percent of that crowd was like robot chicken heads. And they were just like, and here's uh, Doc Cameron and Jackson Public. <laughs> cough small spattering of applause and then like here's seth green and i don't know matthew seinrich is that his name the other robot chicken guy and then just a, a wave a wave of emotion from the crowd well the less said about robot chicken <laughs> that's your robot chicken chunk look if we had to sit through robot chicken so we could get that one season modok show on hulu it was fucking worth it because that show fucking ruled Arrested power, Modoc. Boy, we're gonna cut this right out of the episode. <laughs> oh my goodness! But did uh, did Charlie Kaufman's fake brother in the movie adaptation write this uh, screenplay? Because because here we have a chase. It's horse versus motorcycle. Because Aziz escapes on a motorcycle, but Harry follows him on a on a fucking horse. And I have to say, this is a very fun action set piece. I, I thought this chase was great. And uh, at some point, Harry is like calling, and he's like, "You meet me here at this tower or whatever." And the reason why uh, he's like, I need you to hurry is because he said, my horse is getting tired, which is a funny line. And uh, real quick piece of information, whatever hotel this is filmed in has a plaque on the wall. Excuse me, by wall, I mean elevator. And it says like, this is one of two elevators that Arnold Schwarzenegger filmed his horse scene in, in True Lies. So (laughs) at least this country did something right because we memorialized uh, this place. But yeah, I, I like this. Horse versus motorcycle chase. It was fun. Oh, my God. I really enjoyed this. You know, thinking of the men's room melee and this as two parts of one action set piece, this really is the stronger portion of it. This is just downright fun. One thing that that struck me about it in the negative, though, is when – so essentially the, the, the thrust of it is, like you said, motorcycle versus horse. The motorcycle goes into the hotel. So does the horse. The motorcycle goes into an elevator to go up to the roof. So does the horse. And so there's like the slow speed elevator chase, which is awesome. Like, I imagine that's one of the gags in the script where it's like, oh, man, let's put a slow speed elevator chase in this action movie. Like it, on the page, it's pretty funny. But there's a detail they do in in the scene where Abu Aziz on his motorcycle goes into the elevator and grabs a lady hostage, like puts her against the glass. Like, don't you look at me. Don't move. Uh-huh. And it, it clicked. It clicked to me then in that moment. And we still have about two hours left to go. Where this movie doesn't really like women very much. It's, you know, we've seen it already with, you know, the Juno Skinner treatment. We've seen it already with the way it's kind of already sort of starting to portray Helen Tasker. But in this moment, I don't know what it was, but I was like, man, this movie really does not care about a single woman in this movie. Yeah, and that's a pattern that doesn't really change throughout the movie. I would have to agree with you. Like, I don't feel like I don't feel like it ever kind of 
perhaps gets the full redemption for a lot of the like misogyny it seems to weirdly revel in in the first half. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I have to agree with you. And I will just say, like, could you go back to this action set piece? I think this was the, the horse motorcycle chase scene. So much fun. This is also like, I think what James Cameron does really well, which is a traveling action set piece. He, he, he likes to like start an action set piece in one place and move it to another to raise the stakes. He does, I mean, you think about like all the scenes in like Terminator 2 where like, oh, and now we're in a foundry. Like we were just on a, we were just on a, like a runaway tanker and now we're in a foundry. It's like, yes, this is what he does really well. Takes it from a bathroom to a mall to on horseback across a park into a hotel. He does these things so unbelievably well. And this was just, yeah, another, another entry into the fantastic, like, action vision i think that that james cameron has like playing this like in a fun way that like again i feel like a lot of like james cameron stuff especially i'll just say i'll I'll leave it to this movie i won't speak to all his work but for this movie really going what's the most fun decision we could make here like thinking about like when you're sitting down to like approach the scene approach like how you want to map it out like what are the beats I really feel like, okay, he could get in a car. He could get on another motorcycle. I think a lesser action movie has him get on another motorcycle and they do this like dance of motorcycles. <laughs> a real Mission Impossible 2, was that it? I can't remember like which uh, Mission Impossible that was. The John Woo yes. motorcycle. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. And and speaking of, I feel like that's another thing. Taking the, uh, you know, James Cameron taking from the uh, Jackie Chan action sequences leading through buildings you know, from the street into a ladder and broomstick factory. You're like, yes, (laughs) it could have easily been that, but they were like, what's more fun. He chases him on a horse. What a, what a, what a delight. And yeah, I love this scene. It's so good. And we see at this hotel, there's like a smooth jazz ensemble playing, which I was like, as soon as they cut to these people, it's like, you know, the motorcycle and the horse are going to drive right through this thing, which I mean, in terms of a more hateable music, (laughs) smooth jazz. I don't know if it's hateable. But then also they they do the bit again because then inside an elevator, we see this like stuffy old couple. And you know that this couple's no fucking fun. You know that they're like, can't wait to get back to their hotel and polish their monocles. And then the doors open. In comes a horse. Rule of threes. We needed one more like thing, stuffy thing to get busted up by this chase. What what could it have been? Uh, two men moving a chandelier. I feel like instead of a pane of glass, the silliness of that, it's two guys moving a chandelier from one ballroom to the other. Like it, 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 it's that level of silliness that I feel like this movie is striving for and, and, and could have hit. Yeah, I think you're right. What's one more silly thing? Frankly, I'm surprised they didn't interrupt a bris on the roof. Kind of going off what you're saying, Andrew, maybe instead of a chandelier, maybe they're moving a large painting and then they're able to oh move it away just in time as the motorcycle goes by. But Schwarzenegger, the horse right through the fucking middle. And it's a painting of a horse. Like, of course, because that would be a stuffy. Oh, yeah. It's like a, a classic yeah. painting in a stuffy hotel, just a painting of a horse. It jumps right through it. That would. Oh, come on. But the chase ends up on the roof and is easy on a motorcycle. And he's running on a road here. He's on the fucking roof. Where can he go? So he backs up the bike, nah, 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 revs it up. And he just jumps off the fucking building, which there's no way he's going to make this jump all the way to the top of the building uh, next door. And when we cut from his initial launch, we cut to a shot of his, you know, downward trajectory. And somehow he's magically much farther along. It's a definite like, what the fuck? Kind of magic jump on the bike. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger here is like, you know, the motorcycle can do it, the horse can do it. He's about to make the horse do the same jump. This horse is no idiot. (laughs) A great description (laughs) of a horse. (laughs) And so the horse... 
puts on the horse brakes instead of jumping off, sending Arnold over the uh, edge. And he's like, unless he pulled me back up. And the horse does pull him back up. And as soon as he gets back on the roof, keep in mind, he was just dangling off the side of this fucking skyscraper or whatever, very tall building. And as soon as he gets pulled back on the roof, he instantly like turns to Aziz and glares at him. He fucking hates that this dude got away. And then like, just this ridiculous, like, horsey, pull me, just back up, horsey, to going from there to just like, ooh, villain got away. Something about that, that was so funny. And I marked out. It's my first mark out moment. (laughs) Nice. And Harry, played by Arnold here, was not happy that the horse didn't try the jump. In fact, he he says to the horse, and this is a police horse, by the way. I don't know if we mentioned that earlier. He says to the horse, uh, what kind of a cop are you anyway? Which is funny because I was like, man, this reminds me of another line. And I remember later, it's from the goddamn Seven Samurai movie when uh, one of the characters says, and you call yourself a horse for not making a jump. So I have to believe that was not a uh, conscious nod to Seven Samurai, but I I like that those movies linked anyway. Oh man, imagine like James Cameron doing the work there. It's like, this is my homage to Kurosawa when Arnold chides the horse for not making a jump to a pool. Like, man, oh man. It, it truly is some uh, movie magic. Like there, this is, this is just like, again, what's the most fun, ridiculous thing like we could, we could do in this scenario. And I don't think it's in the movie. I don't think it happens in the movie, but in my brain, when the horse stops, my brain inserts tire screeching sound effects. It's not in the movie. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's there, but for whatever reason, my brain inserts the, like the screeching tire breaking noise, because there is some noise that happens there. It's not tire screeching, but like my brain fills that in. And he flips over the like hedge and like the, he like does that clicking noise to get the, like the horse to back up. But like, the very idea that Harry Tasker slash uh, uh, Rehnquist thinks that a horse is making this jump in any in any world has me question his f- being fit for duty. I feel like, you, like <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. Give your badge and your gun. You're out of your fucking mind if you think this horse is even clearing the fucking curb at the bottom of the uh, hotel. Here's the thing. So let's say that horse lives in the same universe as the motorcycle that just made that jump. However the logistics need to be. Let's say this hotel is on the 60th floor and let's say that pool is on on the top of a two-story brownstone. Whatever it takes to get that motorcycle from the roof of the hotel to the pool, let's do it. Let's jump that horse from the 60th floor of the hotel down to the second floor of the two-story brownstone and just watch it explode like a watermelon at a Galaga show. I was going to say, tell that Foley team to get that celery ready because <laughs> here comes the sound of four broken horse legs. Oh, you're hearing like broken horse ribs. You're hearing broken horse spine. It's like an elevator falling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, get ready to dump a pot of wet macaroni on the floor because that's what it's going to be. When this horse just liquefies on the pavement, that doesn't happen. Thank God. Yeah, no one was boring. There's no no animals were harmed. No horses were harmed in the filming scene. We hope some were traumatized. But but Abuzis gets away. Uh, Harry's gonna leave him for another day. Meanwhile, we cut to Harry's home. He arrives several hours late for his birthday celebration. Helen is still waiting at the table for him. The presents are still out. The cake is still out. And you know, for the movie. This is the first time this is happening, let's say. 
you know, because if we really sit there and think, okay, they've been married for 15 years, he's been a spy for 17 years, how many Christmases are like this? How many Thanksgivings are like this? How depressing does this backstory get between Harry and Helen when you really get down to it? Yeah, this is the point where, like, the direness of the, the like, on the ropes, how on the ropes this marriage is. Like, this is a sad state of affairs. Like, he has been real, he's been a bad husband and father. Like, this is where that is becomes abundantly clear. And I kind of wish I had a little bit more of this, like, kind of peek into his home life earlier in the movie. I mean, you get a little bit with his, with Dana stealing the money. You're like, ah, she's not being raised right. Like something, like, you know what I mean? Like, you, you're getting, like, peaks of that. But this is where it is and put in, like, pretty stark contrast. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a bummer. <laughs> It almost feels like Brad Bird watched this movie and thought, you know what? It would be nice to make a movie where Harry doesn't turn out to be an asshole this whole time. Like, if he learned something, and that's how he got The Incredibles. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, his wife is a plate to keep spinning. Nothing more to him at this point. As Garfield once said, the only place he takes her is for granted. And I, I paraphrase, of course, uh, Garfield. When is that quotable Mac Blake coming out? <laughs> it's just me saying, I believe Garfield said. And then <laughs> a bunch of Garfield quotes. So Mac and Andrew, the next day, Harry decides to pop in on Helen at work for a quick apology lunch. But Harry overhears Helen talking about a possible affair. Turns out the underappreciated Helen is in flirty communique with supposed secret agent Simon, played by Bill Paxton. Harry does not handle it well and turns his spy powers on his own wife, planting a transmitter on Helen to eavesdrop on her meeting with the sleazy Simon. Harry then follows Simon to his actual job, where the supposed secret agent is revealed to be a sleazy used car salesman. This scene where uh, they find out that Simon is uh, a used car salesman has my favorite line read of the entire movie, which is Tom Arnold. As soon as they pull up, it's Tom Arnold going, the guy is a goddamn used car salesman. This just keeps getting better and better. I'm sorry. Yeah, but like that, the, the guy, his read of the guy is a goddamn used car salesman is so full of like restrained joy because he is loving this for his distraught, devastated friend. It's so, it's such a, it's so good. I just love it. I love that read. The, the building relationship between Simon and Gib as Gib is surveilling the, the lunch date between Helen and Simon. Just, man, I love this guy. Like, we're still gonna have to kill him, but I love this guy. Like, it's, it's terrific. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when, when this happens, like, you know, when Harry's like, you know, I think Helen's having an affair. You know, Gib, Tom Arnold is like, Oh, no shit. This is, of course, was going to happen. Like, and it happened to me several times. Now it's happening to you. Of course, buddy, you don't give a shit about your wife. Of course, she's going to cheat on you. And it's, it's, it's interesting to get, I, you know, you don't expect this kind of out of like a, a wingman character in a movie. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for flagging this, because this is also like in this very kind of silly movie, this very kind of silly action movie, this over the top action movie. That's got, you know, some pretty ridiculous stuff in it. There is a very real moment that Tom Arnold delivers in this scene where he's like, what'd you expect, Harry? She's a flesh and blood woman and you're never there. Like this was like he delivers all that that line like really sincerely. And it like I I, I think it, it, it marks a pretty like abrupt tonal shift in the movie in terms of like, okay. Harry has has met something that like he wasn't prepared for. And yeah, I love it. I thought that was, I thought it was a great scene and a great job by Tom Arnold in that in that little moment. Same here. I completely agree. I think it also it does the impossible where it adds a little bit of heft or a little bit of depth to the Gibb character, where he's not just some quip machine. He's not just there to make wisecracks. 
he is actually there as an equal. Like he is also an agent in the Omega Sector, if you can believe Tom Arnold made it this far. But it, it's a moment like that where Tom Arnold's making a joke one moment about he had an ex who took the ice cube trays and what kind of a crazy bitch takes the ice cube trays. And then to go from a funny moment like that, a hilarious moment like that, <laughs> to to odd sincerity. No, it was it was an excellent move on Tom Arnold's part. Yeah, I mean, the, the tonal shift in this movie where we slam the brakes on this action story to now, you know, hit this like romantic comedy thing where it's like, oh my God, I'm a secret agent. I can't tell my wife who's now, you know, flirting with this dude who's a used car salesman pretending to be a secret agent. Ooh, the irony. Like the fact that this movie took this tonal shift, it's, you know, a little jarring, but also this is the movie. Yeah. Like this is the reason there is this movie was to make this giant, you know, tonal shift and then slam the brakes on it later and go back to an, an, a weird action movie. You know, it, this this is true lies. So, uh, you know, uh, get on or get off, I guess. But the but the deception is on, you know, Helen's lying to Harry and Harry's been lying to Helen for 15 years. Uh, they have an awkward dinner where Harry tries to grill Helen a little bit. Even, you know, he knows her secret, but wants to see how she plays it. But I got to tell you guys, I was distracted the whole time because they cut to a wider shot of the of the family and Dane is there. And of course, being a teenager, she's like, may I be excused? She hasn't finished her dinner. There is a fucking mountain of food on her plate. Like we had this with The Incredibles 2 where it's like, hey, guys, it's left overnight. We have steak. We have pasta. We have anything your heart desires. And they're just not hungry. I really wish movies would just be like, hey, may I be excused? Oh, you haven't finished your dino nuggets. And it's like, yeah, because they suck or something. You know, it's like. You're not a good cook. Just let me leave the table. But like, man, to leave all that food behind bummed me out. Didn't notice at all, but I, I take your word for it. That's what I bring. Also, I don't know. I mean, I granted, this, she was a teenage girl. As a teenage boy, you could not, and some things never change. Like, you put that food on my plate, it is gone. When I was like, when I was a teenager, I was eating everything all the time. I was eating, like, I was just uh, housing food. And it seems like, I don't know. It feels like the more teenage move would be to like take your plate and just like leave the table, like take it with you to your yeah. room or to like put your headphones on your Walkman and like listen to it like in the den or whatever. But yeah, I'm with you there. The, leaving a plate of uh, plate of food, kind of a bummer. But after dinner, Harry takes the family dog for a walk, but really he doesn't give a shit about the dog. He's just going out to meet Gib, who's waiting in a surveillance van outside to kind of like plan their next move on operation wife i guess but as harry is going out to this van you know the dog gizmo which i don't know what kind of dog it is a very small like chihuahua sized animal it like stops to smell something and harry just yanks on the leash you know kind of just tugging pretty hard on this very small dog which honestly was pretty off-putting to see someone being mean to a dog but seeing this scene it made me remember or realize something when and it's something i think that andrew you mentioned earlier which is this is arnold schwarzenegger at the height of his charisma and his likability. So th the fact that like some of his actions now, you know, and him being mean to the dog is like the least of them. The way that he like aggressively like tricks and controls and confuses his own wife seems pretty fucked up. But the reason why this movie can do those things and still make an insane amount of money was because Arnold was so likable. That's maybe something that is lost as this movie ages. It's like, man, you just don't understand how likable that dude was in 1994. Like, he just, you know, he, he was uh, at the top of his game. 
Mac, you couldn't be that. That is such an astute observation. I think you're absolutely right that like, you know, Arnold peak of his power is absolute, like super charismatic. I think he gets away with being kind of a piece of shit for the, like, you know, after the break into act two of this movie, which I think a lesser actor wouldn't be able to pull off because like at this point in the movie, like his mission now is not to save the world, it's to save a marriage like that. You know, that's that, that becomes his mission now. And in the, you know, trials and tribulations of the beginning of act two, he's going to do it incorrectly. Like he's going to make like the wrong, like the wrong choices and do like the wrong thing until he figures out the right way to do it uh, until he shows like some personal growth. And so like, yeah, he's got to be kind of a creep and gaslight his wife and like surveil her and all the things that like, again, outside of the context of this movie are like gross, but within the context of this movie and like, you know, Harry's arc for this thing, I think it works because like you said, Arnold, so goddamn likable. Well, you know, he's so goddamn likable, but also he's coming off a stretch where, you know, his last movie with James Cameron three years prior is Terminator two. He famously said something like 136 words in that entire movie. He was a robot. And then from there he had last action hero where he's kind of poking fun of himself as an action hero. So to go from those two movies to this one, where he's really, for all intents and purposes, just an average guy. I mean, sure, he happens to be a secret agent, but he's also just walking the dog in the rain. He also has questions about his wife's fidelity. Like, give credit to Arnold Schwarzenegger for being able to pull that off, especially in the context of who he was at this time. And it's also the thin line this movie walks, because that's the joke, is that this dude is a spy, and all of a sudden his own wife is cheating on him, and so he uses all his spy skills on this, you know, he overkills a situation to figure out what's going on with his wife. I mean, imagine if James Bond was like, um, you know, it's almost like an episode of Seinfeld. Like if James Bond is like, you know, I think there's uh, fat in this, uh, you know, supposedly like fat-free Froyo. And then he, you know, he goes undercover. He gets all these gadgets from Q to basically like figure out what's going on with this Froyo. So the fact that like this over sp- uh, overkill, like, you know, super spy tactics are being used on his own home life, like that's the joke. It also happens to be super fucking creepy, but at the same time, I don't, I'm going to go ahead and say it works in this movie because, you know, this Arnold and James Cameron and Jamie Lee Curtis, they're all, they're all likable, right? I mean, it's, I I, I hate to do this because I don't want to like breeze over some stuff that feels like a little misogynist, but you know, I, I, I would say don't take it too seriously. Well, I'll tell you what it, your point bleeds into a point that I was going to make when they're getting ready to surveil Helen when they're walking through the Omega sector offices and Harry decides I'm going to put a tracker in Helen's purse. And Gib reminds me, he's like, you know, Hey, are you out of your mind? This is illegal. This is an unauthorized wiretap. And Harry's response is yeah. And we do 20 unauthorized wiretaps a day. And we've talked about this in, in movies with law enforcement and movies with the government, stuff like that, where they'll put stuff in the movie that we're supposed to chuckle at as though (laughs) they do be like that. Don't they? When really, you know, (laughs) in any other context, we should be alarmed that we're so cavalier about the fact that the government is just doing unauthorized wiretaps. I think this movie lives in that universe where we buy that Arnold is going to these extremes, going to these lengths to surveil on his wife to find out if she's cheating or not. Like, that's just that's just the kind of movie this is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you're when you're a spy hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
And I feel like that's like, for this is like, how do I solve my marital problems? Well, I'll use the only skills I have, which are spy skills, not marriage yeah. skills. And so like, yeah, that's the back half of this movie is him like learning. It's like, oh no, I just need to talk with my wife, which is so funny because in this very scene where like Gib hands in the purse, it's like, you know, I was watching Sally Jesse Raphael. Like, I like, <laughs> want you to talk to him, you know, just like get inside. The, and he just like grabs the purse and slams the door. It's like, if you need to talk, talking to the purse again a funny button on this like moment where it's like hey uh you're you're like the guy who's been down this road before is giving you actually good advice and you're ignoring it and you'll come to realize this later but it's just i think that's very funny i think that that, that's and and it works for his character really well and so the next part of their plan uh happens and that is they're gonna find out where simon works and he is a used car salesman and so harry gets out to talk to simon at his place of business what y'all think about this scene well, I'll start. I um, I have a, I have a real hard time with this scene. Uh, I'll put it this way: this whole interaction between Arnold and Bill Paxton can go, but I don't want it to leave because it is the introduction of one of my favorite supporting characters in this movie, maybe of any action movie. I think Bill Paxton as Simon is so winning in every scene he does. I think he is he is that sort of counterpoint to you know as far as. Uh, as far as Arnold's charm in this movie and Arnold's charisma lets him and the movie get away with a lot. I think that's true of Bill Paxton too. And he's just testing the strike zone a lot more than Arnold is, or this movie is we're like, he's just a creep. He's just talking about getting in, in ladies panties. And he's talking about all these women he shagged and from anybody else, this is catapults him out of the car that he's driving. But Bill Paxton, I kind of want to see where this is going. <laughs> Yeah, he does way too good of a job being a fucking creep. And he's like, yeah, you know, I know why you want this Corvette. The vet gets him wet. We're talking about pussy here. And you're just like, oh, God, shut the fuck up. But also, this is so funny. It's just he's so good at being <laughs> sleazy to the point where you're like, oh, man, I think a nuke can go ahead and take out every character in this movie. And I'd, I'd be OK with it. But at some point, you know, Harry's asking him, like, oh, who, who are you currently trying to seduce? And he's like, oh, you know, I got this uh, this uh, hot housewife you know, uh, on the hook. And they're talking about, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Helen. And Bill Paxton, as Simon says this about her. Oh, gosh, she's got the most incredible body and a pair of titties make you want to stand up and beg for buttermilk. Ass like a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> I mean, this dialogue. <laughs> if they set out to write some creepy fucking dialogue that a sleaze would say, I mean, they knocked it out of the park. And then begging for buttermilk, no thanks. And then ask like it no thanks as well. It's like, no, it's like, well, this character's kind of funny. I don't want to see Arnold kill him. Now you're like, yeah, I want to see Arnold rip off this guy's head. By the time it gets to ask like a 10-year-old boy, like, wow, you guys really hit a multiplier with that. Like that like catapults it into, hey, Arnold, uh, go ahead and open the door and uh, take Paxton's head and use it to break the car like use it to use it to bring the car to a stop use it like his face like flintstone's feet and bring the car to a stop with his face unbelievably awful just like so unbelievably gross also i 100 paxton i'm just incredible in this role he he also got like coke thin for this role which i think also like <laughs> added to the like sleaziness of it like he's i mean smarm off the charts it's it's tremendous well we do see Harry punch out Bill Paxton and then Bill Paxton's face like a bloody mess. But then a second later, like, oh, that was just like a dream sequence or like a fantasy sequence. That's just what Harry wanted to do in that moment. But when he punched him, it didn't seem like a a thing that did not happen. It was like, yeah, that's 
the logical next part of the scene. And you're like, oh, that was a fantasy. I Okay, that's the surprising part is that he didn't uh, hit him after that. Bill Paxton's dialogue in this scene feels like they had a writer's meeting and they were like, we need something a creep would say. And one of the writers said, okay, promise not to get mad. Like that's, <laughs> it really hits home in a way that is borderline troubling. But when Harry learns of a meeting between Helen and Simon, he sends federal agents to break up the rendezvous. After a super cuttable scene where Harry interrogates Helen, we're rewarded with the classic scene where Harry interrogates Simon. So what's Harry's plan to save his marriage? Why the classic plan of telling his wife she has to go undercover as a sex worker or go to jail? Oh, that old chestnut. How does it go? We never find out because Crimson Jihad busts in and kidnaps Harry and Helen. So we, we pick up this scene where Harry and Gib are meeting and it's, you know, Gib is turning over today's intelligence report. It's, it's a transcript of a conversation between Helen and Simon. And Gib hands him the documents. There's, it's like 11 pages and he's flipping through it. He turns to Gib and he goes, there's a page missing. You know, it, it skips from page eight to page 10. There's a page missing. Man, Gib, you're a spy. You know, like you couldn't have dummied up a fake page 10 or whatever. Like you couldn't have slipped something in. You know, he's going to look for it like that. Damn near took me out of the movie. Man, fucking Spycraft slipping. You're like, that's really <laughs> fucking F. You are you failed this one, uh, Gib. Yeah, really, really bad. Yeah. Very easy to print this out, no numbers on the pages, or just alter it in Microsoft Word. Give <laughs> me a fucking break. Come on. Do they really just say peas and carrots at each other for a minute and a half? That's weird. Uh, who's this Lorem Ipsum person? But Harry reads the intelligence. He finds out that Helen and Simon are going to rendezvous somewhere. And what's going to happen is Helen gets picked up. She parks under an overpass, which you would never do anywhere, and then gets taken by Simon to his quote-unquote hideout, which is actually just his house. Uh, it's a trailer somewhere in the woods. And there's a moment when they first get there, because what's going to happen is Simon's going to spin this lie like he's going overseas and he needs Helen to play his wife. And they're celebrating the occasion with a little bit of champagne. They pour it into some crystal-looking goblets. But then when they clink the glasses, <laughs> the the tonk, the noise the plastic glassware makes is so goddamn funny. I laughed out loud. It was such a brilliant little detail in this movie. Tonk is absolutely the perfect automatopoeia <laughs> for the sound of those two glasses. Quote unquote clinking. <laughs> yeah. It 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 does. I mean, honestly, like on, on a short list of like a tiny detail that tells you everything you need, you need to know about a situation, just like the crumminess of it, the fucking the fact that this guy is just like a complete sleaze, a charlatan, and has like not a freaking dime in the bank. Just just like the joyless thud of those two plastic glasses clinking. <laughs> I, I'm sold. I, I know exactly like the, the this whole the whole vibe here is completely telegraphed in that moment. It's great. But Simon is still going on about how he's a secret agent. He's keeping up this ruse. He's like, Helen, I need your help. I need your help on this op. He need to pretend to be my wife. Let's practice right now because we need some practice being super intimate with one another. Just, you know, uh, let's create this kind of intimacy that tells people that we're definitely a married couple in love because if they doubt it for a second, we're fucking dead. Now, what this means is they're basically going to practice like making out. And as Simon starts to like climb on top of Helen, Helen's like, oh, I don't think we should. Which like pushes Simon away. I, part of this, this actually kind of bothered me for some reason. Because ostensibly, Helen is like hot for Simon, right? She likes the fact that he's a spy. She's attracted to him. But in this moment when 
it's like, okay, now he actually wants to make this relationship physical. She pushes him away because she's like, no, I'm, you know, I don't think she says it, but she's like, no, I'm, I'm married. Uh, this was fun, but I'm still like faithful to my husband. I guess it thinks it's keeping her character likable. Like, oh, sure, she's underappreciated, but she's still a true blue lady. But Harry hasn't earned this kind of like devotion from her. Correct. Because the fact that he's like, you know, basically he's like stopped giving a shit about her and she's like attracted to this other dude. I feel like, okay, is that true or is that not? If it's true, then like let them kiss. Like, I, I don't know. It, it's, it really didn't like super bother me, but it's definitely something I noticed. Well, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I remember seeing this movie originally and thinking it's kind of silly because it culminates in Harry and his crew cutting open the side of, of the trailer and basically raiding it and ambushing them and, and kidnapping uh, Simon and Helen. And there's so much chaos going on when the, when the facade of the trailer comes down that Simon ends up between Helen's legs. And it's supposed to be played for laughs. It's a, it's a comedic moment of misunderstanding where Harry comes in and he thinks, oh my God, Simon's making love to my wife. But looking at it now as we're older and as this movie has aged, it kind of undercuts the moment we just had with Helen where we know that she's being faithful to Harry. We know that she has made the right decisions all along. But for Harry to come in and Simon is between her legs and all he sees is white hot rage, it really does a disservice, again, to women in this movie. I completely agree. I also think like what we're, you know, this is kind of a bigger problem of the movie that you get get another flash of it here. And in this moment is Helen lacks quite a bit of agency in, in this film. And in a way that like kind of uses her as means to an end, which is like Harry's personal growth. And that kind of sucks. Like I, I like, I understand like the sort of dramatic motivation of having her in this kind of rotten marriage with a guy who's like, you know, barely there and like doesn't appreciate her and wanting to like explore that again, like on a high level, I think it makes sense. But from like a character motivation scene level, I think, I think Helen like feels pretty flat. And so, yeah, I agree that that like little moment undercuts what was just like a glimmer of that three dimensionality, dimensionality. Sure. Um, like, sure. yeah. Um, gives a, a glimmer of that and then immediately undercuts it. So yeah, I, I, I think I don't have the solution to the problem, but I think that that could probably, that little bit of business could probably change to something else. But Harry's like, okay, Simon, you're a spy. We'll fucking treat you like a spy and we'll, we'll be able to raid your place with like commandos basically. And as they're yanking Simon and Helen out of the trailer, Helen fights back. And so one of these like commando dudes hits Helen in the head with the butt of his gun. She's thankfully uh, not hurt. And Harry punches the dude who did it. But oh my God, she could have died. She could have had a hematoma. She could have just been like seriously hurt. This movie, we are hair's breadth away from this movie being Fargo or Before the Devil Knows You're Dead or, or uh, Uncut Gems. Just something where it's like, oh, you thought that this was not going to be a problem, but it fucking was very fast. I, I, I feel the same way about the punch that Harry gives to the guy that butts Helen with the gun because, like, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And this guy is not expecting to be punched by his partner. Like, he could have laid him out. That guy could have bounced his head off the concrete. You're absolutely right. This movie could have choose your own adventure its way into a government trial. But Helen is brought back to Omega Sector headquarters for a fucking interrogation. 
and Harry and Gib, uh, using a voice modulator, are now grilling Harry's wife behind, uh, you know, the one-way glass. Well, what do you think of this scene, y'all? Not much. It's completely forgettable. In fact, I think I fast-forwarded through most of it because I knew I wasn't missing anything. One small nugget that I will shine a light on is when Harry asks Helen to recount her meeting, her first meeting with Simon or how she met Simon. And it's a flashback to when Simon slips Helen a briefcase in a restaurant and Helen opens the briefcase and it's full of a, it's got a gun and it's got some passports and maps and stuff like that. The fact that Simon, this goddamn sleaze, is carrying around a fake briefcase to pick up chicks is the fucking funniest thing to me. I just wanted to give that its own moment. Yeah, seriously, what a weird sociopath to be like, oh, at the drop of a hat, I'm going to pretend to be a spy. I Yeah, this scene is very this scene is very interesting because, again, I feel like this is another example of this movie's biggest flaws, which is like it needs to convey this information and it does so in kind of a pretty flat way or an uninteresting way. Like you need to know, well, you don't need to know because we're on the inside of the audience, but Harry needs to know that his wife has been faithful to him this whole time, which again, it feels pretty unearned for Helen to be like, I, I totally get her, her her kind of monologue of like, I wanted to do something reckless and wild and look back and say, I fucking did that. Very, a very real thing that people like a very real emotional comes from a very real place. But then like, like the only thing that saves Helen in Harry's eyes is that she didn't cheat on him. It's like, you're a piece of shit, dude. Her like admitting to like not having cheated on you shouldn't be like the thing that like, well, I guess I can love my wife again. That shouldn't be the moment for Harry to like decide like, whew, well, everything's fine. I guess she didn't cheat on me, even though it's like, what's like, you know, this is like, what did I do to lose her? It's like, what did you do to keep her, man? Like, you know, mm, yeah. so you like, it, I, I think this is like a little bit of an unearned moment for, for Helen, certainly, because again, she's been r- remarkably flat this whole time in terms of like dimen- her dimension as a character. But then definitely for Harry, I think they try to sell it as this moment where he like comes around, but it's like, nah, dog, like you just like did all this insanely creepy spycraft just to learn this one fact. And then like, well, everything's fine now. Like, so now I'm going to put her to work. I don't know. It feels, it feels again, I don't have the answer for you what this scene should be, but it should be something different. (laughs) I agree. In fact, I think Gib has the perfect button on this whole useless scene after they've interrogated Helen and she admits that she's been faithful to Harry. Gib is just like, hey, congratulations, man. Your wife loves you. Now what? Like, we just did all of that shit. So what are you going to do now? You found out your wife fucking loves you, you moron? You're absolutely right. What a great bit. Like, of him just like, Haha, she loves you. Now what? Like, brilliant. Incredible. Okay. But like, is that is that the movie calling it shot? The fact that it does feel like really silly? Like, is that the movie recognizing itself? So I, I don't know. Maybe that makes up for it. I'm not sure. But yeah, that is a very funny bit. But the answer to now what is we go from this icky interrogation to a surprisingly very fun interrogation scene where Gib and Harry interrogate Simon. In fact, let's just go ahead and play the audio for the entire monologue. Let's hit it. No, I saw, I saw cars. That's all. Come on. I'm not a terrorist. I'm actually a complete coward. If I ever saw a gun, I'd oh god, oh please don't, 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 don't kill me. I'm not a spy. I'm nothing. I'm naval lint. I have to lie to women to get laid. And and, and I don't score much. 
I got a little dick. It's pathetic. Oh, 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 God. Oh, would a spy pee himself, huh? Huh? Oh, God. Please, I'm not worth a bullet. Oh, mercy, sir. Get the fuck out of here, huh? <laughs> I just wanted to give this credit. It is a Bill Paxton tour de force. He's playing off of himself, essentially, and just landing bullseye after bullseye with this dialogue. I loved it so much. This is, in fact, going to be my first markout moment. <laughs> uh, am I allowed to give markout moments as a guest? Yes. Please. You most certainly are, yeah. This is my first markout moment. I loved this bit of business so much. Again, because it's a continuation of Simon, or, or sorry, it's a continuation of Bill Paxton, who probably was on set for like, four days like they filmed with him for like a week and he just came in and went fucking lights out he brought everything he left it all on the court he was incredible and this scene i love it so much and like to get that performance out of him to deliver that line is like i got a little dig is pathetic like it's amazing incredible it kind of reminded me of like uh, MacGruber where he's like, I'll suck your dick. Just like that kind of panic. <laughs> but instead, he just went on like this verbal like cuck spree where he's like, I don't score much. I have a little dick. Like I, I wanted that to keep going. <laughs> I just yeah, yeah. more pathetic stuff. Very funny. So they like, it's like, get lost, dipshit. Blam, 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 blam. Tom Arnold like fires some shots at his feet to like tell him to get lost. The van pulls away and Bill Paxton is left in like silk boxers and a tank top in the middle of nowhere near like a dam. Again, this is an extra beat of him looking around, like not knowing where he is, how he's going to get home. And again, there's not the brake sound on the horse feet and there's not a coyote howl when he's standing alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the fucking middle of nowhere. But man, did I want it so bad to hear that. Amazing. Yeah. Also, something about the casual Tom Arnold, like get lost dipshit and then popping off four rounds. Oddly very satisfying. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Big time. So uh, Harry, I guess, sensing that his wife was missing something from the relationship, instead of thinking that the missing part was uh, respect or him or attention, he was like, she's missing some thrill. And so I guess he's going to give that to her because what happens now? So he's going to task Helen Tasker with going on a secret mission. She's going to play... A sex worker, she's going to go to the suite at the Marquis Hotel, and she's going to meet with a mysterious man. Her her mission is to plant uh, a, a microchip by the phone uh, on the on the desk so that they can, quote unquote, listen to this uh, fake person's conversations. You know what? This is a classic scene. I'll say that. I, th I think it is one of the most memorable. I feel like people will remember the scene more than they remember the fact that it came from True Lies, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I... I fast forwarded through a, a large chunk of this. I did not fast forward through all of it. I'll be quite honest, but it, it's a mostly, it's a mostly forgettable scene. Like I wish this could have been conveyed in a different way, but man, you got to sell tickets. Yeah. This, this feel, this scene is like parodied. Like when this movie came out, like this scene was like parody. It's like this and like the helicopter scene at the end were like two things that I remember like other, like, like naked gun, like one of the naked guns parodied this. But like, talk about a real switcheroo. We have here Helen Tasker, who not 10 minutes before was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And like shoves Simon off is now like doing a erotic striptease with reckless abandon that again, you got to sell tickets, but also feels like who is Helen Tasker at all? Like, I don't know who this character is at all. 
Uh, this It just feels very strange. And I'll tell you, when I saw this as a kid, this was scandalous. This was a, a very scandalous scene. And I will tell you, I absolutely fast forwarded it on the plane when I watched it. <laughs> I will not be watching the Jamie Lee Curtis uh, striptease scene next to someone on a plane. That is my nightmare, 100%. But you're absolutely right about this scene being like iconic because you know, I was talking to my feral wife. And, you know, she uh, came into the room and one of the the tunnel system that she has dug in her house. And she's like, oh, what movie are you going to talk about with, with Andrew? And I was like, oh, True Lies. And we both sort of expressed like just like discomfort with the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis was like being so sexy or whatever. But even my feral wife, <laughs> she goes, but you, with a bod like that, you gotta, you gotta with a bod like that, that bod. <laughs> <laughs> feral wife saying bod. And you know what? In this case. It's a damn bod. I think she, you're right. Your wife is right. I think it's a. I think it's a bod. Without veering dangerously into broing out territory right now, uh, yeah, you, you can't argue with results, Coach. Before she goes in the room to meet with this, um, you know, like a, a criminal or like a terrorist or whatever, but really, of course, it's you know Arnold just sitting in a dark room pretending to be this like bad guy. Uh, but before she goes in the room to meet with this, you know, supposed bad dude, she's like, I guess I should look like a female Pat Riley first, and so she wets back her hair and. They had one of their French agents record some dialogue like, yes, no, that's good. Yes, dance for me. I like to watch. And then uh, I guess that was Triumph and Song Comic Dog. I thought it was really, really funny because they they play this pre-recorded audio and it's like, dance for me. And then you know, she starts dancing and then he presses the next you know piece of pre-recorded audio and it goes, no, 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 dance sexy. So the fact that he knew his wife well enough to where it's like, Nope, she's not a sexy dancer. Like he had that ready to go is pretty fucking funny. Two things about this scene. One, the music that they're playing when she's like grinding is like some weird shitty bar blues. Get that the fuck out of here. But also, oh my goodness, it's America's new favorite segment of the show. What's the plan here? Here we go. Because <laughs> if this scene went according to plan, she dances for him. Harry Tasker gets up. He's got a rose and he's like, you know, lie down on the bed and close your eyes. And then what? She opens her eyes and it's Harry and like, oh, and then he explains to her and they fuck. Was that his plan? Or the B plan is uh, she never opens her eyes because she's trembling with fear at the moment. And so he just leaves eventually. Yeah. Uh, again, absolutely, Mac. I do not know what the best case scenario is here. <laughs> like, I, I, I have no idea how this scene plays out if the bad guys don't burst in, not like five seconds later. And what I will say, whatever Harry Tasker lacks in marital skills, he more than makes up for in tape recorder skills. That guy has fast forward and rewind cold that he has it so good a thing that now you would solve with a soundboard but at the time only the technology was available for a little like micro disc like a, a like an answering machine tape recorder but man he is on the ball with that thing impressive dude it reminds me of that scene in the departed where matt damon uses like that fucking nokia brick in his pocket and no look texts uh jack nicholson and this is back, what was it called, like T9 or whatever? What, yeah, you know T9. what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, basically where you had to, if you wanted to press the letter C, you had to find the one button and press it like four times or whatever to text C or maybe three times. But he fucking knew. Nothing impressed me more in that movie 
than Matt Damon's pocket texting on that old fucking phone. It's amazing that this feels like spy tech. It's like, oh, this is where our government money is going. It's going to tape recorders for Omega Sector that play like eight track players. But the bad guys burst in. Juno's there. Aziz is there. And they're like, I guess they burst in because they're like, oh, no, the secret agent Harry guy, he's going to be a problem. So we need to take him out. But you fucking blew it, bad guys, because he totally stopped paying attention to your entire organization so he could, like, you know, spy on his wife. If they had just <laughs> left him alone, they would have nuked the country by now a million times over. Oh, you blew it, bad guys. Again, when the when the terrorists burst in, it really is just like, oh, right. There's a terrorist organization in this movie. So much. We've been gone from that business for so long. Like when they first burst in, I remember being like, who are these guys? Like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, oh, right. Yeah, there's I forgot. There's like a whole like other plot going on in this movie that we've been absent from for like half an hour. It feels like this movie will be 30 years next year. And it is just now occurring to me that they could have just completely circumvented Harry Tasker <laughs> and gone on with their mission. I'm so stupid. But when the bad guys burst in, Helen is like, oh, no, uh, I'm a secret agent. Leave my computer salesman husband alone. It's me you want. Which, you know, it's kind of funny. We're, we're kind of a little bit in like farce territory here where it's like, oh, the truth is going to come out. Uh, the cards are going to be on the table and uh, that table is going to be on fire because now we're back in uh, action movie time again. Well, Mac and Andrew, Harry, Helen, and Juno land on an island off the Florida Keys where it's revealed that Crimson Jihad leader Abu Aziz, played by Art Malik, has nukes, four of them. Harry and Helen are held hostage, but thankfully Harry is an untrustworthy husband and planted a transmitter in his wife's purse that Crimson Jihad were kind enough to bring with them. Harry and Helen escape their captors, but Harry is thought dead when half an island explodes. Juno is about to murder Helen when Aziz decides they should keep Helen as a hostage instead. So we get to the Florida Keys, where we get to an island off the Florida Keys. We meet Juno, uh, or Juno's going to take us there. She's going to reveal these priceless statues from like the 5th century. She calls them the Four Horsemen. And they, they hook up some hooks to the side of these statues and rip them open and there's nukes. How does that happen? Am I stupid? Like, how do nukes get into priceless artifacts? Uh, David... Excellent question. Uh, a, a bit of cognitive dissonance that still plagues me to this day. I don't know how they did it uh, when I saw the movie back then. I don't know if it makes a lot of sense now. It's like, they're, she's like, they're absolutely priceless. Pity. And then they break them up when there's nukes inside. It's like, well, you already ruined them to ostensibly stuff nukes inside the statues and then re-plaster them up. Like, they're already, this is already a shame. This is like, nothing of value was lost here because something was already destroyed. Yeah, makes no sense. I did not even stop to think about that because I was um, I, I blacked out because at, she's pointing these statues, which are of like sphinxes, like or sort of griffins with human faces. Right. And she goes, they call them the four horsemen. There's no fucking way they call these the four horsemen. They don't ride horses. They have wings and their their bodies are not that of horses. It's just I was like, there's no way. It's like they call them the four a uh, half kitty cat, half Chrysler Oldsmobile. No, no, they don't. No, they fucking don't. <laughs> I don't know why. I was just so mad. I was so mad. Well, because I also have to imagine this is not original intellectual property. Like, I have to imagine they're in tribute to something where, you know, it's not like you look up at Orion's belt and you're like, oh, there's Jerry the Cowboy or whatever. Like, these statues are probably named after the thing they are inspired by. Yes. 
She points to the Washington Monument. They call him the Big Circle. I don't, I don't get it, y'all. But Aziz wants Harry to verify the nukes on camera because Aziz is shooting his terrorist propaganda video, which includes a lot of uh, firing guns in the air. Way too many guns. Th- those bullets, they got to come down somewhere, guys. But the cameraman filming this, you know, uh, terrorist type video, he's, he's having some problems. He's filming the manifesto video for Aziz, and then suddenly the battery starts to wear down, and then finally the battery goes out. I gotta tell you, I remember this dead battery gag better than most of the movie. I laughed a lot then. I still laugh at it now. It is it is one of the relatable slices of life in this movie, and I enjoyed it so much. I could not agree with you more, David. It is such a funny bit of business, and not only that, but can we get a round of applause for the actor who delivers as his hand is trembling. He is like, has a flop sweat because he does not want to let Aziz down. And you're like, his hand is trembling as like the camera comes down and Aziz is like shoulders up shrugging. Like the hell are you doing? Like I'm in the middle of, I was like the crescendo. <laughs> and then like it cuts to him just like, almost tears in his eyes. Like the actor is like sweating, almost like tears are pooling in the corners of his eyes. And he just like says batteries and he, it is great. It's, it's amazing. It completely sells it. That like one line from that one actor. Incredible. Fantastic. But now that Harry has done his on camera part, they stick him in the basement and they give him some truth serum to extract. I don't know, some kind of info from him before they kill him. But also real quick, the bad guys like sorting through the personal effects of Henry, I say Henry, Harry, excuse me. And he comes across the oh, his wallet and the photo in his wallet, you know, you see Harry, you see Helen, but then you see the daughter, Dana. And Aziz like sees this photo and his eyes go wide. I don't know why he gives a shit that she has a, he's got a daughter, but he's going to kidnap her later. It doesn't make sense, but whatever. But then we cut back to the basement where this truth serum is taking effect. And, you know, you get some, you know, some funny dialogue here between uh, Helen, who's now, you know, got, you know, complete access to Harry and all of his secrets. And she's like, did you ever, have you ever killed anyone? He's like, yeah, but they were all bad. Very funny. But the guy that gave Harry the truth serum comes back down. He's like a torturer. And Harry, uh, even though he seems like the valve of it, he doesn't seem too worried. No, he's very confident, you know, because he's, he's telling the truth. So he tells this ethnic John Hurt truthfully. He's like, I'm going to kill you pretty soon. And the doctor's like, oh, really? How? And so Arnold explains, I'm going to... Use use a human shield. I'm going to grab one of those scalpels. I'm going to throw it in this guy on the guy's eye over there. I'm going to snap your neck for fun. And the the doctor re- responds with like, oh, uh, uh, how are you going to do all that? And so Arnold says, well, you know those handcuffs I have? Sure. I picked them. The reaction from the doctor's face, <laughs> coupled with the actual, <laughs> the, the, oh, <laughs> coupled with the actual execution of the movements, coupled with him calling his shot, actually killing the doctor. Actually throwing a scalpel at the henchman. I marked out. This is going to be my second mark out moment. I enjoyed the heck out of this. I'm going to also throw a mark out moment to this. What a great, like, you get this emotional scene between Harry and Helen. Then you have, yeah, Arnold calling his shot. You have the torturer who went to the Vincent Price School of Villainous Acting and and vocalizations. (laughs) And yeah, you see it all go exactly as Harry described it. And it's shot in a really cool way. Like it's shot in a very like kinetic way that makes what he just described just like really pop. It like really like it, it, it really puts the jumper cables back on this movie being an action movie. Cause like since the hotel room to now, since they kidnapped him in the hotel room to now, 
it's back in the action movie storyline, but not a lot of action has happened. It's really just kind of a lot of uh, some more like information, a lot of like exposition, some track laying. Oh, then the Florida Keys, all this kind of stuff. There's a few funny bits, but now it's like, boom, we're back into action. And I feel like it's, yeah, definitely a mark out moment for me. But yes, it's time for them to escape. It's another action set piece. We'll call it, let's blow this place. And as Harry and Helen make their way out, uh, Harry encounters two bad dudes. They both have knives. And Harry manages to maneuver it so where bad guy one stabs bad guy two, but then bad guy two stabs bad guy one, and then he lifts them both up so they they stab each other some more. And this fucking double stab, I don't know what it was about it. It was just too fun of a kill. That's another mark out moment for me. I mommed at it. So, I mean, you're going to get like a string of really fucking like badass moments here. The double stab, the lift up, the kicking the like wood pallet crate to launch the AK-47 into his hands to turn around and spray some bad guys with bullets. Awesome. Kick ass. Just just a real see. This is like a real uh, uh, string of black cats of mark out moments. There's like little like little details, little bits of stuff that's just so cool. It's so great. The movie's back, baby. (laughs) Absolutely. You you really start to feel the momentum pick up. Credit to Arnold in this moment. You know, I think he does some pretty decent combat when he's going three on one. You know, we we talk about actual actors doing their own fighting, doing their own stunts, that sort of thing. He's no Wesley Snipes. Well, you know, I think he'd be the first to admit it. But even with the moment with the tango early on in the movie, I think Arnold is the kind of actor He's sort of a lesser Tom Cruise where he's like, I want to try this. I want Mm. to rehearse this, rehearse this, rehearse this so that the audience has a believable moment, maybe not running through snow. But I think this is one of those where he does his best with combat and he sells it pretty well. But you're absolutely right. This is just the momentum of the movie picking back up. Uh, Listeners, if any of you are listening to this episode and then planning on watching True Lies afterward, please do me a favor. And if you're watching from the beginning, Count the neck snaps in this film because there's a lot of them in this scene right here, and they're including somewhere he like yanks the guy off screen and then you just hear that uh, snap of the neck. Because I, I am curious how many necks got snapped on screen or at least you know uh, in audio uh, during this movie. But this this action set piece is very 80s because you know after we get the neck snapping out of the way and then a wacky thing where a tumbling gun kills a bunch of people, then it settles into just like how many bullets can I throw at you? Like at some point, uh, Harry's like hiding behind a, you know, it doesn't matter, like a crate or something. And of course the hail of bullets like never stops. Like the bad guys, like we clearly don't have visual on him, but we just can't stop firing. Cause it's, this is how we did action movies back then. It's just like, just send walls of bullets at each other. Yeah. You're, this is the movie pushing its budget to the middle of the table and saying, all right, how much can we do with this? It's a lot of ammunition. It's a lot of fire. Uh, I, I am partial to fire effects in movies. Uh, there's a moment here where Harry is pinned behind a gasoline truck, and you think that the the bad guys are going to shoot that and blow it up, but instead Harry grabs the hose from the gas truck and fires his weapon next to it so that the gas coming out of the hose turns into a flamethrower. I'm not quite sure if they've done a Mythbusters on this, but this will be my third mark out moment of the movie. I thought this was fucking awesome. Yeah, channeling pure 80s action of, again, what's the funnest decision possible we can make in this scene? Like, what's like, let's do the funnest thing that we can do. And what is it? It's using that gasoline truck as a flamethrower 
awesome. What a what a what a great sequence. What a great cap to this sequence. Like the uh, balance of power is about to shift again. So like go out with a bang, which it literally does. But yeah, fantastic, tremendous, tremendous uh, scene. And I don't remember what happens here if Aziz shoots like a rocket at Harry or something. But there's a giant fireball. In fact, Helen thinks that Harry died. But this action set piece ends with Harry diving in the water to escape a fireball. And here we get an underwater shot of Arnold swimming below the surface. And you can see above the surface, it's just nothing but flames. I mean, if you're an action hero, this is the shot you want. I guarantee you the shot was in the trailer. It just fucking looks cool as hell. I mean, this is why we're here, right? <laughs> we're, we're here for these, this kind of stuff. <laughs> I didn't mark out, but I was like, mm-hmm, this is what we're doing good. I like it. It's interesting too, you know, I think uh, this is kind of a larger point to this movie is an in- well, the, the, an interesting shift uh, from Arnold being used as an action hero for his body. Because like in previous movies, like back in Terminator 2, last action hero, he's in like a skin tight red shirt. You're seeing the muscles, you're seeing the guns in Terminator 2. He's naked for a lot of it. Like, and you just see what a powerful, like, you see his bodybuilder physique in this movie. He's a secret agent. He's also like a dad and family man. It really, again, it's a, it's a career shift from being like a man of muscle to like a man of means. And like the most we get is like torn shirt sleeves off. It's like, we got, it's like, look, we paid for the guns. We got to see him. Like we got to see him at least a little bit kind of oiled up. You got to see some like definition on those buys and tries, but like, it, 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 I think this is the beginning of him like not being used as just like a specimen, so to speak. That's a fair point. But with that in mind, I do have a quick punch up where as they're trying to work their way off the island, Helen and Harry, Harry's sleeves start to start to shred and start to fray. And Helen gets a look at those arms and just purrs and maybe drags her fingernails along his forearm. And suddenly the marriage is rekindled. Yeah, just like two arm wrap around of like grabbing onto that, that arm, man, mm-hmm. hold me close with those. I, I think I want to horn in your movie again, <laughs> <laughs> but Gib finds Harry and off they go to get a helicopter side seat for a bridge ambush. It's an action set piece. We'll call the Harry is a Harrier. The bridge being used to transport the nukes gets blown up by some Harrier jets. And Harry makes up for that whole lying to Helen for the past 15 years by saving her from plunging to her death. The nuke does detonate underwater, but that's probably okay, right? <laughs> so Gib is going to show up. They lost the signal from the transmitter uh, a few moments ago, or rather a few hours ago in the life of this movie. But they find the carnage. They find the the blown up island. And Gib even makes remarks like, I, I knew this was your handiwork. What was Harry doing while he waited? Do you think? I know this has no, this is not germane to the plot of the movie, but like, you got to figure an hour is going to pass. Like, do you think he's sweating that thinking I'm never getting off this island? Yeah, probably protein loading. Probably, you know, just it's like I'm going to take a quick micro nap. You know, it's probably just something where he's like, I'm going to fight soon. I'm just going to be motionless and resist my energy. So we go into, again, the next traveling action set piece that that Cameron is so good at which is like the limo and like the trucks with the nukes on the bridge and the Harrier jets like shooting it out. Another tremendous, fantastic sequence. And really using all of the uh, James Cameron budget, the blank check budget that James Cameron could command at this time. Brav fucking O. It's awesome. It is so cool. But the Harrier jets show up and uh, Gibb and Harrier are in a helicopter 
And they're like, you know, hey, you jets, uh, fire your missiles, uh, you know, go ahead and take out the the bridge in front of the car with the nuke. And the Harrier jet pilot is like, uh, okay, uh, quick question though. Well, these missiles, is, is it safe to fire them around the nuclear weapon? Are, are they going to cause it to go off? And Harry goes, negative, negative, it did, you know, it'll be all right. And then he, Harry turns to Gib and he, he kind of cringes and makes like a, that's fucking me talking out of my ass face. Like I really, maybe like, it just has so, that's so fucking funny. Straight out of the Simpsons. It made me laugh. Uh, another markout moment. Hell yeah. It's interesting. You know, I, I don't, I don't quite have the count on this one, but it feels like an odd number of markout moments for us come from comedic moments in this movie, which for a movie that has some giant action set pieces and some great stunt work and some great effects it really is extracting as much as it can out of the comedic moments. And so I have to give this movie credit for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, this movie does not hesitate to slam on the brakes for jokes. At one point, a terrorist van, you know, the, the bridge has been blown out in front of it. And the terrorist van slams on the brakes. And it's like literally like it's, it's right on the, uh, the tip of the fulcrum there or whatever. And it's like, oh, my God, we're going to fall off. And it's like, oh, no, we're perfectly balanced. Our van is not going to plunge into the water below. And they're all kind of laughing in relief. And then a big old pelican comes in and lands on the hood of the car. And they're like, oh, no. And then the car falls 12 feet and then explodes as if the car was made out of a bomb. But yeah, just some jokes. Just some jokes. All this movie is missing is like the fucking WB frog, like driving one of the characters insane. Because that is the pelican landing and like disturbing the balance of the fucking van is absolutely Looney Tunes. That is so cartoonish. and funny as fucking hell yeah it truly is you know which is troubling because you know this is an action movie podcast i want to see this thing climb up the mountain because of its action and i feel like sometimes these jokes or these joke moments take away from that but you better believe when i was 14 i absolutely needed this respite or else (laughs) i would have had a seizure from the nonstop action going on like i you know audiences need these comedic moments i thought these were executed well credit to the movie i found the original script and it didn't have a pelican in it. It's like, you know, the, the van, it rested perfectly balanced. And then a guy in the back was like, time to celebrate with this jar of peanut brittle. He opens it up. <laughs> you, you better believe there's two snakes in there. Ah. They explode. They hit the front of the car. The van falls to its uh, explosive doom. Truly like Homer with the snow plow adjusting the radiator. <laughs> to this side and, yeah. and readjust the balance of this thing so he doesn't go off the mountain. That level of silliness is on display here. But while Harriers were chasing vans with nukes, there's a limousine carrying Helen and her captor, uh, Juno. And at some moment, there's a fight inside this limo. And I'll say this, it, this is another kind of like tease of the T. Aquarius character was tougher than we realized. Helen hits her in the head as hard as she can with a champagne bottle. And Juno pops right back up and was like, oh, fuck. It wasn't until a second blow with a champagne bottle that she uh, goes down for just a little bit, not dead. So uh, that's that's pretty tough. That's incredibly tough. You know, if you ever get hit with a champagne bottle, pray that it breaks, you know, because that's that's not going to be the hardest impact. The guy who's hitting you is only going to get one shot and then maybe he'll stab you with it. But golly, two conks on the head with a with an unbroken champagne bottle. Yeah, that's uh, that's tough gal Hall of Fame. But this limo. The driver of it was shot. It's now headed full speed towards the bridge that has now been, you know, the gap in the bridge because the the bridge is out. So Helen is uh, racing to her doom. 
this nuke's about to go off and there's no time to like get down there and like stop the speeding limo. The only way Harry can rescue her is to, uh, while he's in the helicopter, have the helicopter get low enough to where he can grab his wife out of the top of the limousine, which he does at the very last second. There's a wide shot of this actual stunt of the person being like pulled out of a limo right before it goes in the water. And we also get another shot of Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, kind of like floating above uh, the ground, you know, the, the ocean or whatever. Man, what'd you guys think about this limo rescue? Any, any thoughts? This is going to be my fourth markout moment. This is just a fun time at the movies. The whole sequence, it builds tension well. It pays off nicely. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger hanging from a helicopter to save Jamie Lee Curtis from a runaway limo. Just look at that on the page, and it's awesome. They executed it well again. I'll, I'll, I've said that a lot for the second half of this movie. This will be my fourth markout moment. 100%. I got a markout on this one as well. I mean... Didn't someone enter like the Oscars on like someone like lowering them down? Uh, was it Jamie Lee Curtis who was like lowered like onto the stage from like an arm in the thing? I feel like that was it was like used in like a stage production of something or like an award show. Someone was lowered from like from a, a helicopter. This is a classic scene. This is something that is was uh, oft parodied. Uh, it was like in the cultural zeitgeist because it was such an engaging and incredible action set piece and like. Truly a testament, again, to someone somewhere called James Cameron, the last great administrator, because he has a vision and he has a command of every aspect of the filmmaking process. Like he knows how to do everything on a movie set from like script supervising to like model building to directing to cinematography. He knows how everything works. He and can delegate those things incredibly well. And it's how you get breathtaking action sequences like this that are filmed incredibly well incredibly efficiently and yeah it's incredible it's just, this is such an awesome such an awesome moment and like there's still more movie to go folks it really feels like <laughs> this feels like a climactic scene and this is like nah dog this is like almost like at the end of the third act but we've still got like we've got more movie to go it's pretty wild for sure it is wild and i also marked out there's the turkey I got goosebumps at this scene. And you might be like, man, what a weird life you have to where this is uh, making the hairs on your arms uh, uh, stand up. But look, I, I co-host an action movie podcast. What do you want from me? Like, this is <laughs> this is it. And just in case you think this scene was missing an exclamation mark, they rescue Helen. The nuke is going to go off underwater. Everyone seems like this is a good uh, thing. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it to me. But Harry and Helen kiss in the background, you see a fucking mushroom cloud. Oh, movie, we're in it to win it. But how does it not end there? Like, that's the, I'm surprised there wasn't like a heart cutout that shrunk in on them. And then that's the credits. Like, that really is, man, that's a way to end a James Cameron romantic comedy action. Well, th the reason it didn't end is because somewhere along the way here, this thing got personal and Aziz is going after Dana. Oh my gosh, Mac and Andrew, when Harry learns that Crimson Jihad has Dana, it's off to patch up that relationship too. Dana runs to the roof with Aziz's nuclear key, and Harry shows up in a Harrier jet to save Dana from plunging to her death. Harry kills two birds with one missile, gets off a classic kill line, and gets Helen a job with him so he can track her every move. So while this whole nuke transporting thing was going on, Aziz made a promise. He's like, I'm going to you know, set off a nuke in all these American cities. And so he, I forget where he is. Is it, Are they in Miami now at this point? Yes. And he's like, oh, I need a news crew up here. 
you know, to get my message out. And we see like a typical news anchor looking guy and the cameraman. Who is it? It's Faisal, another member of the Omega Sector team, which, by the way, perfect disguise for Faisal because he looks just like a cameraman that an annoying white anchor would be rude to. You know what I mean? Like he'd be like, here's my shot. Get me here. Don't cut until I say cut like that. Courtney Cox shrill Gail Weathers character or whatever from Scream. Yeah, yeah, the exact yeah, yeah. same <laughs> cut of the jib there. Yeah. I can see the fucking light on the camera. I know when it's recording. I'll tell you when we cut. You don't tell me when we cut. Like, yeah, just a real, okay. Yeah. If you think this TV guy is going to be shitty in general, you're right. Because he's there to interview Aziz. He's there to get the manifesto this time. And, you know, Aziz is going to tell him, I've still got some nukes. I can still kill 2 million people. I just need to turn that key over there in my control panel. And the TV guy asking the, the reporter's questions asks, what key? Where, where did this key go? And so we look up and Dana has taken the key and she is still very slowly making her way to the exit. Like, look, I have my problems with Dana in this moment when she should have just bolted while Aziz was giving his manifesto. But hey, TV guy, shut up about the key. Like, let him talk for 10 more minutes before you ask him that question. Uh, but while Aziz is going after Dana, Faisal and he has hit a gun in the camera. He pulls out the gun, bip, 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 shoots a bunch of terrorists. We cut back to Faisal, who's now instantly covered in flop sweat. And look, as one flop sweater to another... I got to say, I was really impressed with the speed of the sweat. I was like, oh, wow. He's a good, that is a fast flop sweat. I, I thought I had a quick trigger when it came to being uh, instantly damp. But this guy, he just uh, he blew me out of the water, the water uh, that uh, his own body produces. He went from zero to dewy in a matter of seconds. <laughs> I, I, as, as a fellow flop sweater myself, I was terribly impressed. No, yeah. It was, it, I mean, it, it truly was an on-off spigot. Like, it was just like, oh, no, you're, it, it's there. It's not, there's, there's no buildup. You're, you're, you know, you're zero to 60 in one second. It's crazy. And so Harry returns with a hairier jet. I don't know how the movie resisted making a joke about that. And he does it to rescue his daughter. And when Aziz sees what's up, he like does a, not a double take, but like a slow blink. Cause he like literally could be like, I'm sorry, what is going on now? It's maybe too much for the movie. Like it's, I don't know if it's too silly, but man, I'm on, I'm on board. Um, the fact that the, the Aziz was like, the fuck is this? I was like, yeah, man, the fuck is this? Look, another quick audio punch up. We, we missed out on the tire screeching earlier. We missed out on the coyote earlier. Let's at least get a kettle drum here with like burning, like when his eyes go bug eyed and wide like that. Let's get something to punctuate yeah. it. Also, that was how Harry Tasker identified him earlier. His eyes, recognizable eyes, big eyes. You get those big eyes when he like turns to a Tex Avery wolf for a second. Seeing this carrier jet, <laughs> like, yeah, you need that. Just to, yeah, again, you know, spice it up a little. Like, you're in, in for a penny and for a pound movie. And this is another great action set piece, which I don't think we gave this one a name, did we? Well, we've it's still part of Harrier's the Harrier, is it not? Let's call it True Daughter Rescue. I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna need to hear that one more time. True Daughter Rescue. There Thank you. And he tells us a great action set piece because if you were at a bar, you could just say what is happening to someone and it sounds awesome because it's like all right harry's flying this harrier jet while his daughter's on the nose cone he tries to get her for safety but a terrorist who's also on the plane comes to stab him so he's got to like with one arm hold off this terrorist 
And with the other hand, like uh, go between like flying the airplane and also trying to grab his daughter. It's like, and guess what? This movie also has time for fucking jokes because while this is going on, it cuts to inside the building where you see some guy like, like, you know, uh, he's a cleaning, cleaning crew. And he's like vacuuming this uh, corporate office, which we all know is about to get absolutely destroyed by the Harrier jet. And it does. I have a question. I don't know the, I don't know the answer to this, but did this movie start the trope of person with headphones on working in a building oblivious to destruction around them? Because that is something that we have seen countless times since. But this may be my this may be my earliest uh, experience with it. But that is definitely a trope, and it is done here to great effect. I'm inclined to agree. The back of my mind feels that one of the Supermans, like one through four, had that gag, but not as good as this. The guy is cleaning the office. He steps away. He comes back to a destroyed office. I wish he had a hat to throw down on the ground in frustration. But God damn it, this was really well done. And in case you haven't seen this movie in a while, Harrier jets basically are like hovercraft. So it's not like this jet is flying around going like, I don't know, 300 miles an hour. It's kind of just like floating there, which is uh, how this is able to happen. But at some point, Harry like bucks Aziz off the front of the airplane and Aziz lands, you know, like saddle style on the uh, tail fin of the airplane, basically like right, you know, basically nailing his own balls just in case we weren't going broad enough here with the jokes. And there's another moment where, you know, Harry manages to like juke the plane one way and Aziz, instead of falling off the plane, the back of his like utility vest or whatever, it hangs off a missile. And then, uh, you know, Harry makes a face realizing where the bad guy is. And he's like, I'm going to fucking fire this missile. And, you know, but, but what does he, what does he say here? He's got a little, got a little bit of a, a little cute line. Well, you know, it, it serves a purpose because he also sees in his sights in the distance, there's the helicopter that he's been dogfighting with, you know, it's still hanging around. It's still firing at him. So I'll tell you what, I've got Aziz hanging from a missile. I've got a helicopter in my sights. Let me flip the switch on this, deliver the line, you're fired, and then fire this missile into the helicopter. You bet your ass this is my fifth mark out moment. Without question, stone cold, written in the book of life, markout moment. This is incredible stuff, folks. Yeah. God, these are the goods. You know what I mean? This is what we're selling here. Do you like action movies? This is what's for sale, right? Like if you went into an action movie video store and you go, what do you got? We got this. We have a dude saying you're fired and missling off a bad guy into a helicopter full of bad guys. Uh, that's our business. And business is a booming. Yeah. Firing a missile with a bad guy attached into more bad guys. This is the uncut, baby. This is the pure. This is what <laughs> we came for. This is it. This is as good as it gets in moments like these. Yeah. Nothing to do but collect the check. We're going to wrap this up with an epilogue. Uh, they're going to save the day. Harry's going to get taken away, you know, keeping his spy hood intact but then we find out a year later things have changed in the tasker household yeah we see his happy little family playing a weird three-person game of a thumb war which is seriously was they're not a board game within a two-hour drive you couldn't just bring anyway and they get a phone call and the the phone a voice in there on the phone says like boris and doris and which is uh code names that harry gave helen earlier in the movie oh shit Helen's a spy now too. Cut to a fancy party. Helen and Harry are infiltrating it. 
But guess who else is at this party working his magic, pretending to be a secret agent? It's Simon. It is Bill Paxton. And they see him, even though they're supposed to keep a low profile, they go up and they fuck with him a little bit. And uh, I think he pees himself. Is that right? He does pee himself again because uh, Helen places something under his chin. It feels like a gun. Uh, so he wets himself and runs off, scampers off, really. Like he's got uh, like he's got like a hot butt, like he sat on a fire in a cartoon and he just scampers off. I- I'm glad we got a curtain call for Bill Paxton in this movie. It's a, I'm glad we got a curtain call for him, too. It's such a silly moment. It's also something that you know, tests the bonds of credulity. Just because, like, they're, they're ostensibly at that same, uh, like, uh, another, like, Austrian mansion, four mansion filled with dignitaries and generals and stuff like that. And Paxton's now a waiter there. Shut up. The movie's over. You got to see a guy fired on a missile. Who gives a fuck? You got your money for it. Doesn't matter. This is just fun. Yeah. Did he lose his used car salesman job? Why is he a waiter now? Like a, you know, like an events waiter, too. Kind of like party down. But, I mean, quick punch up. I would have loved some more cuck talk out of Paxton. When he realizes, you know, who's um, who's there, I wish you would have been like, uh, I got a little dick and uh, my cum smells weird. Uh, like uh, just more showing his belly, more rolling over and just being a real uh, just a just a real supplicant. But Gib is the guy in the van. He's like, yo, uh, Helen and Harry Taskers, you need to get out of there. Oh, but a tango music starts playing and they cannot resist a tango. And this movie, Whiskey Tango, Fox trotting its way to its end. And that is the conclusion of True Lies. All right, let's cut to the tail of the tape. How many mark-out moments did you have in this? How many moms up in this piece? I had a very healthy five. How about y'all? I think I had four mark-out moments. I think I had four in this bad boy. I had four as well. Y'all, is this someone's favorite movie? It definitely was at some point. I think actively someone has to be cryogenically frozen. I think in 1995, they stepped into a chamber. They have not been thawed out yet, but when they wake up, they their first, one of their first questions is, what of true lies? What are y'all thinking? Uh, you know what? I weirdly think this is a dad's favorite movie. A person of one of our dad's age. So someone in their like, you know, mid to late 60s, early 70s who like grew up with Arnold, like in, in, in your Predators, your Commandos, like grew up with that. And then like, yeah, again, who lived kind of, who was like aging in parallel with Arnold at this time. You know what? I still think that this might be that person's favorite movie. Because I mean, again, like the back half of this movie is hitting on, on like so many cylinders and it's sitting hitting on all cylinders. I do think this is a dad's favorite movie, actually. Yeah, I think if there are Arnold Schwarzenegger fans that some slice of that circle graph has to be for true lies. So yeah, I, I think it's, I think for sure this is probably someone's favorite movie. All right, time for punch-ups. We're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? David, let's start with you. I'll make mine quick. I've got a couple, but I think I can roll it all into one because my first thought was, I've mentioned this earlier in the show, there's a couple scenes that could really be cut altogether. The the scene with Juno and Aziz, I think we do need that information, but it could be presented in a much better way. Same thing with the interrogation of, of Helen and Harry. But I'll just roll this all into a plea for James Cameron, the man who gave us Sarah Connor, the man who gave us a version of Ripley that is awesome. Where is some of that James Cameron female lead character magic or just female character magic? Like you have Jamie Lee Curtis, who I believe has some other action movies under her belt, or at least some form of physicality, whether it even comes from the movie Perfect. But like, I think you could give her instructions on how to fight 
And I think she could do some great stuff with it. I think you could give her some badass lines or a kill line or some cool dialogue and she could deliver it. Same thing with, you know, we talked about Tia Carrere in this movie. I think she's an awesome femme fatale or I think she, I think she's the idea of an awesome femme fatale, but we don't quite execute with it. I think there's a lot of real estate to play with when it comes to the female characters. Maybe that's the most reductive way to put it. But uh, I really would have liked to have seen James Cameron put a little more effort into what he does with the women in this movie. Those are my punch-ups. What do y'all have? Yeah. So, you know, uh, upon revisiting this movie twice in quick succession, like, I honestly think, and I've said it before, you know, the markout moments, this movie is so much fun. But I I come down to my thinking on this. I think this is a fun movie. I don't know if it's a good movie because I think the problems that it has with the female characters, with a lot of the unearned emotional stuff is pretty glaring. And it's a little bit difficult to get past. And especially because, again, it is trying to serve two masters. It is trying to tell two stories at the same time that I feel like a lot of the pacing and balance of that is a misstep he missteps a couple of times in this and with, you know, as we talked about earlier with the fact that like you kind of forget that there's a terrorist plot going on, like you could have just left Harry to like relearn to love his wife again. And the terrorists could have just done their thing. It's like, that's kind of a problem from, for, for like an action movie that you forget that it's an action movie for a while. But then yeah, again with, I have to agree with you, David, that like the treatment of women in this movie, the characterizations are, are, are pretty flat. I feel like also like while we have this amazing helicopter rescue with Arnold, like pulling his wife, snatching his wife out of this limo as it crashes, that's an amazing physical demonstration of Arnold's love for his wife and his like willingness to go to extreme lengths to like protect her and save her. But I need an emotional revelation from Arnold in this moment where he like learns something about himself what he values, what is really important to him. And I don't think we ever really get that. If I'm wrong, point it out. If there's like a moment or a line of dialogue or something where you see kind of it emotionally click for Harry and him realize kind of like the error of his ways. Because in the end, you know how we talked about he was trying to solve a, a marriage problem with spycraft tools. He kind of still saves his marriage in the end with spycraft tools. I needed to see him do something more emotional, something more more arc-driven, more character-driven to earn that kiss during a nuclear explosion. Because that is an awesome, awesome moment that I really would have loved to see undergirded by emotional depth. And I don't think that was there. So my my punch-ups are very in parallel with you, David. I just wanted to see some more, some more dimension from the female characters from Helen and to see Arnold have more of a, a more of a journey. I think it's telling that the emotional discovery that you're describing, I think for the movie, it comes in the hotel scene where Helen is dancing for Harry, because I think it's in that moment where Harry's like, Oh, she's got a smoking bod under those demure dresses. Maybe I've been treating her all wrong. And like, we buy it as an audience because that's the kind of movie it is, but you're absolutely right. I think I would have liked, let's try, let's try to emote a little bit, Arnold. Let's try some acting here. No, yeah, my first punch up is is that same one. I mean, have that conversation. Seriously, did it get cut from the movie? Why didn't these characters talk about like, hey, uh, Harry, what the fuck? And him being like, why did you have an affair? Like, talk about your fucking marriage. How did you end up here? You don't have to spend the whole movie on it, but you have to fucking talk about it. 
because otherwise just like a, a nuke going off does not a marriage fix. Uh, trust me, I've tried. I mean, it's in that interrogation scene where he gets the sodium pentothal and like has to tell the truth that around that area is where that emo- like around that point in the movie is where he needs to make that emotional confession and they need to have that conversation and be real with each other and they get close to it but they don't ever actually commit and do it like she just kind of asks him like kind of superficial questions about his past and like it never becomes about them and that but in that moment that should have become about them but i feel that him being on tr- a truth serum cheapens that moment if you were going to have that revelation you need that same conversation around that point in the movie but harry needs to be sober and attentive and invested in that conversation for it to carry the weight so again i think that needs fixing and i don't but i don't know how to fix it without uh pulling out final draft yeah (laughs) i think you can have that moment in the truth serum as long as that revelation is a surprise to harry like the fact that maybe you get him to admit a truth that he has been he knows but he's been hiding or doesn't want to admit to himself just like you know stunned by his his own honesty you know i didn't finish the new that flash movie but in the beginning of it like batman accidentally sits on the last of truth and then says some shit that he's like what the fuck like you know i didn't not prepared to to know that about myself but anyway it was kind of funny another punch up yeah tia carrera give her some physical skills like when they fight in the limo it's just kind of a fight between two people who don't fight. What if she had some sort of killer ability, you know, some sort of uh, fighting or, you know, style or something that we've seen exhibited earlier on to where now when Helen is going up against her, it's like, oh, I'm outmatched and I'm able to beat her. That's exciting. Uh, my biggest punch up, though, is in, in real life, Eliza Dushku, when she was a child, this is to be serious for a second, she was molested on set by a stunt coordinator. So, biggest punch up is, God, I wish that didn't fucking happen. I wish there was proper like protocol or safety checks or something there to where this wouldn't happen to a child who's basically working, making a movie. The fact that we can look back about True Lies and we think this is a fun movie and Elijah Dusku looks back on this movie and she's like, oh, that was the film where I was molested. That's fucking heartbreaking. And the fact that she uh, was able to move on from that and have a long and fruitful career, uh, my hat is is off to her. She's a hero. So yeah, I'd like to see that that wrong right. That'd be great. No argument there. So yeah, please join me in the Punch Mountain Video Store. As you know, it's an all-action movie video store. We have three copies of True Lies. Every movie in here is an action movie. So what subsections of action, what shelves, where would you stock these movies? I'm going to knock out the two easy ones. I'm going to say one for the James Cameron shelf, one for the Arnold shelf, and I'm going to defer the third copy to our guest, Andrew Rosas. Do you have a thought on where this third copy would go in the video store? Ooh, excellent question. I feel like this could go... You know what? Action comedy. This has to go in mm-hmm. action comedy because, like, thinking about like half our markout moments were funny bits. Like they were like the funny, like so. Like I gotta put this like as kind of a like tentpole of action comedies, especially like when that wasn't really a thing for a while. I feel like this was one of the first big action comedies ever uh, in my mind that like had with this kind of budget, with this kind of like you know, star power behind it, certainly. So yeah, I I'm, I'm, I think action comedy is where it's got to go. Yeah, you know, you're right. And that is interesting because watching this movie, it's like, oh, I didn't remember this movie being so cringe. I also did not remember this movie being so funny, but it, you're right. Uh, it fucking was. It's a funny movie. Okay, now it's time to reveal the position of True Lies on Punch Mountain, aka the definitive ranking of action movies. As a reminder, at the summit, 
of the mountain. Currently, it's number one, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, followed by Raid 2, The Matrix, Jurassic Park, Hard Boiled, John Wick, Atomic Blonde, and Speed. Located at the used car dealership, which is, you know, outside the mountain. It's number 47. It's chappy. So, David, before we uh, uncover the mountains ranking, where would you put this movie? I'd put it high. I mean, if you were to somehow magically start this movie at Bill Paxton's interrogation scene and go from there, this could challenge the top of the mountain. But there's so much to wade through with the low-key racism, with the high-key sexism and chauvinism. It's a, it's a challenge to justify the first hour of this movie. But I'll be good goddamned if that second half isn't just a powerhouse action movie in its own right. I, I think this will be re- well represented on the mountain. I'm not quite sure it's necessarily like a mountain slayer. What are y'all thinking? Yeah, I think because this movie is so nuts, it you know it gets a high position. But because it is nuts, then maybe it doesn't uh, reach the top of the mountain. But yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, this is this is an interesting this is an interesting situation because like you know we have as we've laid out kind of like legitimate and not ignorable gripes with this movie. Things that are like, not just like, oh, this scene didn't make sense. And there are those in this, but like, oh, there are like philosophical things I don't like about this movie. And like, you know, you know, things, the treatment of women, like the characterization of uh, uh, foreign people is, is not, not that great. And also I think other things on the mountain that have maybe like less good, or I would say high budget action set pieces do better in that regard in terms of its treatment of people and like the, the giving characters three dimensions uh, across, across the cast. So I'm, yeah, I'm not sure that this is going to like rocket to the top of the charts, but I mean, thinking about how much heavy lifting the back half of this movie does, it's probably pretty high on the mountain, higher than you might expect if I had to guess. Oh my goodness, everyone. <laughs> Careful, your horses are, might try to buck you off. Those are, That sound is the falling rocks, and they're falling off the face of Punch Mountain. The golden letters are appearing, revealing the position of True Lies at number 11. This is number 10, Prey. Number 11, True Lies. 12, RRR. 13, Road Warrior and Roadhouse. Oh my goodness. Almost cracking the top 10. Almost a Mountain Slayer. Almost a Mountain Slayer. I think the problems are obvious. We don't necessarily need to beat those drums. I, I really think the second half of this movie carries it. I also think there's something oddly poetic about being it being right under prey. I'm super happy where this ended up on the mountain. Concur, 100%. Yeah, it, uh, it, it, will, it will rest easy there at number 11, I think. At this point in the podcast, we'd normally do a, a call to action segment where we'd play some fun sounds and spotlight a deserving nonprofit. But today we want to touch upon what is happening in Gaza. Like any rational people, we are horrified at the loss of life, the escalating cruelty of denying humanitarian aid to the displaced and the injured and the dying, and what appear to be war crimes against the people of Gaza. For the rest of the year, after every episode, Punch Mountain will make a small donation to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. The PCRF is the primary humanitarian organization in Palestine. They deliver crucial, life-saving medical relief and humanitarian aid on the ground. For more information or to donate directly to them, visit PCRF.net. Oh my goodness, Andrew Rosas, thank you so much for joining us on the mound today. Uh, Great pick and true lies, super fun to watch and super fun to talk about. Is there anything uh, you'd like to uh, tell our the Punch Mountain listeners about anything you want to plug or promote? <laughs> Any secrets? Um, no, I co-host a podcast uh, for Rooster Teeth called the Rooster Teeth Podcast. It's their oldest uh, flagship show. 
uh, that's been going on since 2008. There are over 700 episodes and they gave uh, me and my friend Armando and Griff uh, the keys, the keys to the show. And so we've been doing that for the last uh, few months. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, roosterteeth.com uh, is where you can check it out. You can either become a first member or uh, watch it for free at our, at our, uh, on the website. Uh, it's a really fun show and I absolutely love doing it. So yeah, the Rooster Teeth podcast, check it out. That's awesome. Andrew Rosas, thank you so much for being on the show. You are welcome in the video store anytime. Folks, that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is on our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, it's just me and Mac back together again. And we're doing a movie from 1974, directed by Joseph Sargent and starring Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw. It's The Taking of Pelham 123. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.